That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. A lot of wild developments in sports today. A lot to talk about. We got three hours to do it. I'm glad that you're along for the ride. Chris Paul, apparently, according to a report from Chris Haynes, uh, has been notified that he will be waived. Future Hall of Famer will be one of the top free agents this offseason. C.J. McCollum reading the tea leaves on Damian Lillard. We'll talk about it. Pac-12 presidents are talking. Sources are talking. It looks like the Pac-12 is Moving towards a media rights deal. They still need to see the numbers, though, don't they? I reported it today at johnconzano.com, and I think a big part of this whole fiasco with UCLA, USC leaving to the Big Ten Conference, big part of this has caused a lot of public education on, on, on a, as it pertains to media rights deals, as it pertains to grant of rights, as it pertains to media markets and what the media companies value. I mean, hell, uh, Bob Thompson, the former Fox Sports Network's president, has basically performed a public service in the last 10, 11 months, explaining to people, hey, it's television households that the media companies value. Sure, brands are, are nice and viewership is nice, but it comes down to TV households. It's why Maryland and Rutgers become valuable. It's why UCLA and USC were attractive, especially to the Big Ten Conference. Frankly, it's why San Diego State who currently remains on hold in Southern California, is attractive to the Pac-12 conference. Uh, I wrote it today at johnconzano.com. Multiple sources in the Pac-12 telling me that they have agreed upon a grant of rights. Now, this doesn't mean they have signed a grant of rights. That's not how it works. It's the terms of the grant of rights. The contract includes a variety of elements that all 10 schools need to agree on. It appears that they have. Among other items, the grant of rights includes what sponsorships the Pac-12 can sell as an entity campuses like Oregon and Oregon State can sell. It uh, it gives the grant of right gives uh, the conference the the right to uh, go out and sell media rights and data rights. And it sort of dictates what sort of joint rights the conference can negotiate to sell. It also it also outlines the revenue and how the revenue will be split among the 10 member schools in the Pac-10 or Pac-12 conference, however you want to see it. Uh, I am being told that the grant of rights includes equal revenue sharing on the media rights front. Multiple sources telling me that. Also, incentivized sharing of postseason revenue when it comes to the college football playoff, but not the NCAA tournament. I find that interesting. What they are doing in the grant of rights is they're basically saying, hey, let's get all of these details together. Let's get on the same page with all of these details. This is a verbal agreement. Hey, this is what we're going to put in writing. Yes, we're good. Yes, you're good. In the end, you have to come over the top of it with media rights dollars 
that sort of glue it all together. If you don't do that, you don't have a deal signed. And so what I'm told is that the Pac-12 conference has agreed on all of the grant of rights issues. They are now only waiting for the final piece of the puzzle, which are the media rights numbers. Now, some people today heard Robert Robbins, the president at Arizona, who has come out and said he believes that the 10 schools will stay together. He sees no reason to... Uh, to believe otherwise, he wants to be in the Pac-12. He believes Arizona and Arizona State should stick together. He also said that he hasn't signed a grant of rights. What he means is that the media rights piece is missing. And that's the most important piece to these campuses. It's the dollars that glue everything together. So if you're struggling with this, um, look, I believe me, I didn't know either. I had to reach out to people months ago and say, okay, explain to me what the grant of rights is. Explain to me what the media rights is. I wish I didn't know any of this because I didn't come up in this business to be covering contracts and the business of sports necessarily. I wanted to I wanted to cover and be into the games themselves, the stuff that we're all interested in seeing as the season unfolds. But uh, we got a great show for you today. I'll outline why I think it's important that the grant of rights is uh, has got agreement, that there's congruency with the schools. I think this is all important stuff. But ultimately, um, until the Pac-12 conference gets that media rights money, yeah, there's going to be people floating around out there wishing and hoping, especially in the Big 12 footprint, where some people, I don't know, can't let go of the idea that the Pac-12, like the Big 12, just wants to stay together, negotiate its own best deal. This is what's best for the ecosystem. And I actually think there's some fans and some fan websites uh, around the Arizona and Colorado footprints that have uh, that don't quite understand what a departure or what a fragmented Pac-12 would do to their brands. Uh, great show today. We'll take phone calls. If you've got questions, 503 area code 417-7575. Uh, we'll get a visit from Casey Pratt, who's in the Bay Area. He works for ABC7. I think he is the authority when it comes to the saga of the Oakland A's and Las Vegas and all of that that is going on in, uh, in the backdrop of Major League Baseball trying to figure out what the heck it's doing and will Portland eventually have an opportunity maybe one day to get in on some of this? I think we'll find out in the coming weeks, in the coming days. Further beyond that, um, uh, you've got uh, at 4 o'clock on today's show, Peter Jacobson will be joining us. PGA Tour member, Champions Tour member, professional golfer, man of the world, uh, native Oregonian, uh, University of Oregon guy, Peter Jacobson, also a commentator on golf, will be joining us to talk about the PGA Tour, the LIV Tour, and how those things are going to come together. What does he make of it? Man, really disappointed to see the flip-flop by Jay Monahan, the commissioner of the PGA. And, you know, he stood, for, he stood for something, and he stood tall until, uh, until he didn't, until he had to stumble through answers about you know, the uh, the 9-11 families and everything that he had said before. Like, you know, I said this on yesterday's show. Like, like I respect all of you as listeners. I respect every viewpoint. And people who call into the show, even if I disagree with you, even if we're on polar opposite ends of any sort of argument, like you may say, hey, I, you know, you want the Pac-12 conference to disintegrate. And I may say, I don't think that's going to happen. You may say that the Oregon Ducks are going undefeated, and I might say, yeah, yeah, they are going to go undefeated. Like, we might agree, we might disagree is what I'm saying. But in the end, I respect that you have a viewpoint, especially if you're coming at it and you have 
thought about it. You've given it some thought. It's not just uh, you throwing nonsense out there for the sake of disagreeing. We can have a conversation. You might change my mind. You might open somebody else's mind. You might help reinforce my argument. Uh, I don't know. But what I don't respect is the flip-flop that we have seen, not just from the PGA Tour Commissioner, Jay Monahan, who like so aggressively said uh, for a year that uh, he thought the LIV money was blood money and he didn't want anything to do with it and the 9-11 families. And, and then suddenly he wakes up and says to his tour members, who he advised to turn down the LIV money, he, he suddenly wakes up and goes, hey, we're taking the money. The league itself is taking the money. Flip-flop by Monaghan. I don't respect that. Here's Monaghan stumbling through an answer uh, when he was asked about the 9-11 families and how they are upset and disappointed with this uh, flip-flop. This is from the Golf Channel. Jay, the 9-11 families united made a strong statement yesterday. They said you co-opted the 9-11 community in taking a moral stance against Liv. How would you respond to that group? Well, I, um, I read Terry's comments. Uh, I, I, you know, obviously acknowledge her loss and completely understand her position. And to the question that you were just asking, you know, I wish, I think about the fact that I allowed confidentiality to prevail here. And in allowing confidentiality to prevail, I did not communicate to very important constituents, including the families of 9-11. And I regret that, uh, I, I, I really do. Um, but as we sit here today, you know, I, I think, I think it's important to, you know, to reiterate that um, I feel like the move that we've made and, and how we move forward is in the best interest of our sport. We've eliminated those fractures. Um, but for, for any, uh, any difficulties I've caused on that front, again, I have to own that as well, and that comes back to communication. It, it sounded to me like Monaghan did not anticipate the question, which is weird to me because as he wakes up, today to go on the golf channel and talk about this i sort of think this would be one of the questions that his pr team and himself as you know he's he's in the shower he's shaving he's driving towards you know where he's going to do this interview with the golf channel whatever it, at some point he's thinking like what are they going to ask me about or he should be and the 9-11 family should have been on his mind, and it sounded to me like he was not prepared for the question. Now, he's done a flip-flop. So have some golfers who are coming out saying, you know, hey, they, uh, they were not on board with LIV or LIV, and now they are, and they understand that it's better for golf. Uh, Rory McIlroy was one of the most outspoken uh, opponents of the LIV tour. He came out today. Uh, you tell me what you think of this. But it's not LIV. I think that's the thing. I still hit live like i hit live like i i hope it goes away and i would fully expect that it does um and i think that's where the distinction here is this is the pj tour the dp world tour and the pif very different from live all i've th tried to do is protect what the pj tour is and what the pj tour stands for and i think it will continue to to do that um so look going forward i hope that 
there's you know there may be a team element and you're going to see maybe me maybe whoever else play in some sort of team golf but i don't think it'll look anything like live has looked and i think that's a good thing yeah look i think he's walking the line there because he knows he has to be and wants to be part of what the pga is doing and uh you know i've got respect for the golfers who have come out and said that they're not okay with it that they feel that they were misled that they feel it was disingenuous again look uh have a viewpoint and uh and support that viewpoint and we don't need to disagree or agree necessarily i think we need to get into a place where we're more comfortable disagreeing but I'm left a little flat by what we've seen this week from the PGA and LIV. What do you want to talk about? 503-417-7575 is the number. We'll talk about the Blazers coming up, uh, NBA Finals. We'll dive into that. Is it flying below the radar and for good reason? Who does that benefit? Uh, Chris Paul struggling in Phoenix uh, appears not to be part of their future there. Uh, real quick, Stephen, on Chris Paul, if he is waived, um, you know, will he command the kind of money and position and team that, uh, you know, we, we expect a name to command? Or did you see something in his game that leaves him as a role player maybe for a contender moving forward? Yeah, I think he's a role player. And he, he can still play and he can still help a, help a team that's looking for a championship, you know, whether that is the Lakers or the Celtics or something like that. Like, he can definitely help him out. But to, to rely on that guy for an entire playoffs. He, he's never been able to do it, even when he was younger and healthy. Now he's older, not healthy, not as quick. Um, I, I wouldn't say that he he's probably not even a starter on a really good team in the NBA anymore. Like that That's where he's kind of fallen off, but he can definitely help a team. I think he'll, there will be a lot of teams after him, especially you know championship-caliber teams that need a veteran on their team, on their squad. I think he's a guy that will get a little bit of, uh, a little bit of play, but you can't really rely on him. Do you think he's a fit for the Blazers, possibly? Because you now have, you know, Damian Lillard saying, uh, you know, that he wants to be in Portland. You have C.J. McCollum coming out, and I'll play this clip coming up in a bit, saying that, you know, he thinks Dame is um, not, not likely to be part of the future in Portland if he's a betting man. Uh, and then I suddenly see Chris Paul available, and I go, okay, is that the kind of player the Blazers could add doesn't feel like it to me, but you tell me. Like I feel like Chris Paul is like the final touches for somebody, not a tent pole. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. I don't think he's a fit in Portland, and I think it's just because you know if, if he's if he's on the court, like he needs the ball still, and Damian Lillard needs the ball as well. So there won't you know that basketball won't be able to go around too much, and then Chris Paul just wouldn't be very helpful, I think, in Portland because he is a guy that you put on your team to try to put over the top. He needs to go, if he wants to win a championship, he needs to go to one of the top three, four teams in the NBA because he's not that caliber of player anymore. He's just not He's just not that player anymore. And it's okay, he's old, and it's just not as good, but he definitely can help you in the playoffs become a, you know, a team that goes from really good to an elite team and hopefully win a championship. C.J. McCollum, former Blazer, joined First Take today. And he said th some things that make the Blazers' near term look really interesting. Here's CJ. I don't think I he's going to ask out. I don't think he's going to request out. But I, I will say this. I think based on how the draft goes and what happens leading up to the draft, if they're not positioned to have what we consider a title contending team or a puncher's chance, he's a boxer, right? He just wants a puncher's chance. And right now they do not have a puncher's chance. I think 
the fans can recognize that, the rest of the league can recognize that, then I think they will have a discussion where they try to figure out what's best for him and where he should go. We talked about Miami. We've talked about Brooklyn. We've talked about your Knicks. I don't think your Knicks are going to be able to get him, but you never know in this business. It's more about what teams can offer for Dame. Who has the right assets? Because he can want to go where he wants to go. You can want him to go to a big market or to Boston or to all of these cities, but the pieces have to work. And I think for them as an organization – they're at a crossroad. If I was a betting man, I would say this is the last that we've seen of him there. Um, if I was a betting man, I, I would say this is the last we've seen of him there. But I'm not a betting man, and I think he's going to let this play out. I think the organization is really going to see what they can honestly get both ways in terms of potentially moving D or p- potentially pairing him with a Mikael Bridges or someone of that caliber. Look, C.J. McCollum uh talking and you know cj knows dame well if you're a blazer fan i think you read this as dame's not going to demand a trade but i think he will whisper in joe cronin's ear at some point if the blazers don't have a puncher's chance so to speak and they don't they don't have a puncher's chance they they are sitting on the outside looking in right now and uh blazer fans i want to hear from you at 503-417-7575 on the damian lillard front i want to ask you something real quick john is is there a chance that dame has already gotten to joe cronin's ear and whispered to him and say you know what if you want to draft someone go for it it could be and i'm just thinking from a from a strategy standpoint aaron goodwin's his agent aaron goodwin's no dummy he's been around this game a long time he used to rep lebron back in the day lebron's first contract aaron goodwin did it uh, Aaron Goodwin was Gary Payton's agent. He was Damon Stoudemire's agent. He's been at this a long time. He's now got Dame and a whole bunch of other young players in the league. So, um, look, Aaron Goodwin's going to play this in the best interest of his client. If you're Damian Lillard, the best-case scenario is to get to a destination where you feel like you have that, quote-unquote, puncher's chance to win. Now, Lillard is saying, first and foremost, he'd like that to be in Portland, and I think I think wisely so. I mean, he's made money here. He lives here. I think he would prefer, if the Blazers are going to win, that he be part of it. But I also think, like, we've seen players like James Harden. He comes to example. He comes to mind. Uh, Kevin Durant, for example. We have seen players who will scorch earth to get to where they want to be. And all they're thinking about is, is themselves. But if you're Damian Lillard, I do think it behooves you to work with the Blazers, not go public demanding a trade and diminish your value, and make it much easier for Joe Cronin to get a deal done. And the question I have is, is Joe Cronin going to make this deal? Like, I, I tweeted this earlier today. I would feel a lot better about where the Blazers are if we saw ownership and we saw general manager and we saw coach in total alignment down the line, like totally aligned. We understand what they're going to do. We understand their mission, but we don't really see that with the Blazers right now. And so I wonder, will Burt Cold end up making this decision? Are we going to have basically Paul Allen's college roommate, the vice chair of the team, acting as the GM and Cronin is just sort of executing what Cold wants him to do? Or are, are you going to be able to get a deal done? Because back in the day, Bob Witsit told me this. He wanted to get the deal for Sean Kemp done. He went into a meeting with Paul Allen. You know, Sean Kemp was going to be, need $20 million a year in salary. It's a huge number at that time. It, you know, represented about 20% of the Blazers' payroll at the time. And Bob Whitson had to sell 
Paul Allen on the idea, and he did. He successfully sold him on the idea of taking on Sean Kemp. He successfully sold him on the idea of making the deal that brought Rasheed Wallace to Portland. He sold him on the deal that brought Damon Stoudemire to Portland. But, you know, who who is Joe Cronin trying to sell here? Is he calling Jody Allen? I don't think so. Is he talking to Burt Cold? I'm not sure. Or is Burt Cold sitting back orchestrating the roster? And if that's the case... I, I shudder where the Blazers organ I shudder to think about where the Blazers organization is going to end up, because Burt Cold is not a basketball mind, and you know he should not be in charge of the Blazers roster. So I really think the Blazers are in a pickle here, and I think if you're Aaron Goodwin, Damian Lillard's agent, you try to work with the Blazers. You try to say, look, we're not going to go public, we're not going to diminish his value. We want you to feel good about what you get because it helps us get to where we need to get. But if Lillard wants to go to one of those places C.J. McCollum mentioned, I could see Aaron Goodwin, the agent, playing the major role in helping facilitate that deal. Not a general manager, Joe Cronin, or not the vice chair, Burt Cold. Keep it here. We're going to visit with Casey Pratt in the Bay Area, ABC7. The Oakland A's, there's a vote today in Vegas. Did they get a resolution? We'll talk to Casey about what it means. Could the A's be headed back to Oakland? Peter Jacobson at 4 o'clock. Leave it here. Tomorrow's show, Peyton Pritchard, Boston Celtics guard, the pride of Westland, Mean Streets of Westland. Peyton Pritchard will be with us tomorrow on the program. Uh, our next guest, Casey Pratt, has been all over the Oakland A's, and for good reason. They have been a mess. I can't say what I really wanted to say about the A's. They've been a mess. He has sat down with the mayor of Oakland. He has talked with John Fisher. He has his finger on the pulse of A's fans. Uh the A's and Oakland uh, found themselves far apart on a potential stadium deal. Now John Fisher trying to get a deal done in Las Vegas, but uh, can he get a deal done? Are they further apart or farther apart in Las Vegas? Casey Pratt joining us, ABC7 in the Bay Area. Casey, what's new, man? Wow. Uh, what is new is they didn't get a ballpark bill passed in their 120-day legislative session. They meet every other year. They couldn't get it done. So then everybody breathed a sigh of relief out here in Oakland. And then two days later, they're trying to jam it through in a special session. And it is quite funny because the session was supposed to begin at 10. It was delayed till noon. And then at noon, the Assembly and Senate showed up and said, uh, here, here we are, and uh, now we're going to go to lunch. And then they went away for a couple more hours, and it's starting back up again now. This is ridiculous. Yeah, lawmakers. <laughs> is ridiculous. Uh, give me an idea, though, because you know my read on it, and tell me if I'm out in left field, literally, just tell me. But my read on it has been all along that you know Oakland and the A's were about like $70 million apart, and then – you got this ballpark in Vegas. It's a $1.5 billion ballpark, 30,000 seats. It sounded to me like they may be even farther apart in Las Vegas when it comes to dollars. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it because while they may have been, and I was told it was $88 million apart out here, hmm. um, when they came to terms on the deal, John Fisher would still have to build the ballpark and the 3,000 housing units and all the other things he said he wanted to build out here, and that's that's pretty expensive. So while they're maybe more dollars apart in Vegas, all he has to do is build a ballpark out there, and that's it. So the pro the project cost out here was around six billion. Out there, it's about 1.5 billion. So 
you know, it's a little bit different. But he would have gotten a lot more on his return of investment in Oakland because in Oakland he would have owned the land, owned the stadium, and had 50-plus waterfront acres to develop, where in Vegas he does not own the land, he does not own the stadium, and he just has nine acres to develop. Give us an idea as we wait to hear what happens in Vegas. What are you expecting from lawmakers, uh, you know, in Carson City? I'm expecting the unexpected, John. I know that's a terrible answer. Um, You know, this is funny because the governor really wants this bill, uh, and he's a Republican. And the the Senate and Assembly are controlled by Democrats who don't really want this bill. And the opinions on the bill by Nevada residents, it was about 71 percent negative. And so what happened today is the governor said, I'm calling a special session. I'm proclaiming that we're going to discuss this item. And the people that are actually in charge of bringing forth the item were like, uh, yeah, we don't really want to do that. So um, the governor has the power to make them show up, but he doesn't have the power to make them actually do anything, which is why I think they showed up, went on a two-hour delay, hmm. showed up again, went on a lunch break. I think they're at this point – I think they're at this point just making a point. They're, they're proving how disinterested they are in what the governor wants them to do right now. We're talking to Casey Pratt, ABC7. Reaction from A's fans, is, are, they, are they mobilizing? Is there anything they can do? What is the scuttlebutt among fans in the Bay Area? I mean, right now the fans are just concerned. Uh, They would really not like to lose yet another sports franchise in Oakland. And what they're trying to do to help keep the team here is put together a reverse boycott on June 13th where they're trying to show that on a random Tuesday night game that would have probably drawn 2,000 fans, they can still fill the Coliseum up with people. Um, They even came up with a deal where – they made their own fan-funded giveaway. They crowdfunded the money to produce over 5,000 sell shirts that they're actually going to be giving away to people who arrive at the games. I've never heard of this, John. Like, They're actually funding their own giveaway. It's crazy out here. Are they – this is – I mean, if I'm John Fisher, I see this and I go, hey, I could go for this. If you're going to show up every night, you're going to create the promotions. But I understand what the fans are trying to do uh, in Oakland is, uh, you know, they badly want to save their team, not lose the team. You had a chance to sit down with the mayor of Oakland, I believe. What did you garner from that conversation? You know, my main takeaway was that she very passionately wants to keep the A's here. Uh, I said, you know, I was sitting at her desk, and I said, if that phone rings right now and it's John Fisher, are you taking that call? And she said, absolutely. I'd cancel my meetings if that happened. And then I asked her if I could listen to that phone call, and she laughed and said, absolutely not. <laughs> but I had to try. Um, and she really wants to keep the A's here. Uh, she really wants to fight for the A's. She says she's working in the background to do so. She says the governor, Gavin Newsom, out here, who I've yet to get a comment from, she says that he's working really hard behind the scenes, too. And I think a lot of what people out here are doing in the government is, is in the background. They're, they're being silent because they don't want to give – a whole bunch of leverage back to Las Vegas by like acting desperate, like they're trying to keep the A's. So it's interesting. The the one thing though is she said she would pick up the phone if they call, but she's not going to be the one to make that call. You know, she says they need to come back to her in her city. Do you get a sense that the A's are at all interested in doing that? At the moment, no. I, I get no sense. I, I get the sense that they're all in on Las Vegas at this time, and I think it's because by the end of today they could have a ballpark bill passed. And there you go. Uh, That could be game over. So they're putting all their time and energy and resources into this deal in Vegas. But 
every bit of it has been rushed and chaotic and they picked a site then 20 days later they switched the site to another one and uh here we are the legislative session is closed and now they're in a special session trying to fire this thing through and it's not being well received you've done a great job covering this i gotta know you know are you enjoying this at all or are you looking at this and going i can't wait to get back to what i'm supposed to be doing and you know again you know i mean this isn't probably what you always did but you've become the a's beat guy on this on this story yeah so a long time ago when i when i was in college i was a journalism major and my goal in life was to be an a's beat writer and I got there, and then I realized it was insane. The travel, all the work was crazy, and so I, so I wanted to step back from beat writing um, and went back into television production. And when this stuff all started up again with the Vegas threats, I started becoming an outspoken person who actually happened to have a lot of sources and knowledge in the situation because I covered the team. And somehow um, all that came together to make me the voice of this whole thing uh, somehow for the fan base and – it's been a wild ride, um, but, you know, tonight, in all honesty, I have NBA Finals Game 3 on the air right here at ABC7. I have Warriors guests coming in for the show. I have a 90-minute show I'm producing myself, and that's my real job. Uh, so uh, as I do this, I'm actually, like, unbelievably swamped with my actual job at the same time. Um, so this has kind of been a wild ride, but, you know, if it, if it is over at some point, at least I'll be able to sleep again. Casey Pratt, ABC7 in the Bay Area. The uh, Finally, Rob Manfred, Major League Baseball. They have to be weary with this. Do you get a sense at all that they're at the point where they're ready to just go, hey, figure this out? Like, John Fisher looks like a problem right now. He looks like a huge problem right now because he's embarrassed Oakland. He's embarrassing Las Vegas. And I think when you look at Rob Manford, he's a guy that works for the owners and the owners don't want to see other owners get forced out because it sets a precedent that makes them all uncomfortable. But I think if they don't get this deal in Vegas today uh, or very soon, you're going to, you're going to start seeing something because there's been a lot of noise. You followed it very closely as have I. And I can't tell you, I, I, I don't think I've seen a single positive story about this Las Vegas move from any prominent national baseball writer, any prominent media figure, I mean, it's unanimous slander at this point for what they've been doing out there in Las Vegas. And that's not good for the game of baseball. And you look at the Coliseum, it's empty, and the team is historically bad. And all of this is on John Fisher. And I think that it's it's embarrassing the game and multiple markets now. I can't see it lasting much longer if they don't get this deal. All right, Casey, good luck tonight with your stuff, and uh, keep up the good work. You're a great follow on social media as well. For people who want to follow Casey, it's at Casey Pratt, ABC7. Casey, thank you, man. Hey, dude, any time for you, John. Take care. Good luck. I hope I hope you get some resolution. i like to see the team stay in Oakland. I think everybody does, so we'll see how that goes. We'll see what happens. All right, there's Casey Pratt, ABC7. In the Bay Area, uh, look, uh, will baseball, will Major League Baseball work in Vegas? Does it work in Vegas the same way that the NFL does? I don't think so. Does it work like hockey? No way. Does it work like the NBA might? I don't think so either. I think baseball is a trickier sell. It's a 30,000 seat to ask on a nightly basis. Um, if you are Las Vegas and you're watching the Golden Knights success or you're watching the Raiders success, I think it's a different animal. But that said, you know, we're going to find out. 
lawmakers in Vegas did not sound happy uh, as, you know, they were, uh, you know, looking at SB 509. Some of the comments that lawmakers were making, like, you know, the Senate and the Assembly meeting in in uh, Carson City, it was stuff like, hey, um, you know, I'm not on board. And they end their four-month session with no resolution, and now they're getting pressure uh, from the governor, and they're getting pressure from others to uh, to get a deal done. But um, I think there's a lot of issues in this Vegas plan, and I will not be surprised. Like, look, what have we seen this week? We saw LIV Golf form a partnership with the PGA. Is it possible that the A's can flip-flop and end up back in Oakland? It's it's possible. Now, I don't think the A's are a candidate for Portland. Get that out of your head. I don't think they are. I think Portland now has its its sights firmly set on Major League Baseball expansion. And I don't think John Fisher was very kind to the Portland contingent that wanted him to come visit. In fact, I think, you know, they didn't want him to visit because they were embarrassed, and I think he didn't want to be anywhere near Portland. And I now think, like, look, the rest of us who are watching John Fisher operate, I mean, I don't see anybody raising their hand right now going, yeah, I'd like to do business with that guy. He is a headache. He is a migraine wrapped in a headache, wrapped in a stomachache, and Vegas is dealing with him right now. Coming up, we're going to play Punch It Audio. And I got the big splash. At 4 o'clock, Peter Jacobson will join us. Former professional golfer, I should just say, professional golfer and commentator Peter Jacobson, 4 o'clock. Game three of the NBA Finals, Nuggets taking on the Miami Heat. Series tied, one game apiece. Steven, we kind of agreed game two would go to Miami. Kind of was uh, a do-or-die moment for the Heat. Nuggets, uh, not their best effort in that game in fact mike malone their coach said he thought it was their worst effort of the playoffs in game two maybe a little bit of nba mentality a little cruise control who wins game three so it's i i think i'm gonna go with miami in this game um mm-hmm. i think miami gets game three and i've said this all along i think denver is the much better team but uh there's just something right now the way miami's playing with jimmy butler i think they get game three here the the zone defense has really worked really well against the nuggets and the Nuggets' pick-and-roll defense was absolutely atrocious uh, in Game 2. I know there's going to be some uh, some things that they fix. Mike Malone's a good a good, a good coach like that. He will fix that type of thing. Uh, but I trust Eric Spolster a little bit more right now for Game 3. I still think Denver wins the series, uh, but Game 3, I think Miami gets it. Game 3 to Miami. All right, let's play some punch and audio. We'll, uh, we'll do the big splash as well in this segment. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start in the NBA since we're on the topic. Chris Paul with the Phoenix Suns. Uh, A report from Chris Haynes of Yahoo Sports says that Chris Paul likely to be waived probably would be waived not part of the future in phoenix here's chris paul talking about uh, the struggles of not winning a championship his kids are getting teased at school punch it it's tough man but can't nobody ever be harder on me than i am on myself right and i feel like i've been in every situation there is possible um i was in the playoffs when i played for uh, the clippers and game three or four in portland one of them i go for a steal my finger gets caught in the guy's jersey, spiral fracture in my hand. I had to get 16 screws put in my hand. 
right? So I've had injuries and things like that. But the one thing about it, as mad as I, all, I am and whatnot, I cannot let that define me, right? I got to get back to work. Got to get back to work. Chris Paul uh, still hunting a championship. Uh, we talked about this earlier, but I think Chris Paul, you know, somebody asked me on Twitter, who's a better player, Anthony Simons or Chris Paul? And I think the question I have back is, tell me about the team they're joining. If it's a team that needs just one more piece to get over the top and needs a veteran player who can play in the half court and play a, a situational role for a championship team, um, uh, that's Chris Paul. Easy. If you are a franchise that is younger and maybe just trying to get regular season wins and you need a player that can play the full court, I would I would take Anthony Simons. Am I reading that right, Stephen, if that's the question? Yeah, I guess. I think Anthony Simons is just a more talented player at this point and still a better player, even if you put him in a role where he doesn't have to be a star player. Like, I think he'd, he'd function a lot more. They're also different players. Like, Anthony mm -hmm. Simons is such a scorer where Chris Paul doesn't look to score. So I, I don't think you're necessarily wrong, but I, I would disagree with you. If that makes sense. Like, no, no. Yeah. It, it, I, the only reason I, I say that is because, look, if you've got a team that's close and you're adding Chris Paul and you're going, look, Chris, here's your thing. You're going to play 11 minutes a game and we're going to need you just situationally and you're going to get a ring at the end. He's happy. You do that to Anthony Simons, you might have a problem at some point of the season. Doesn't it just seem like he's going to the Lakers? Like it just, you know, him and LeBron, they've always <laughs> talked about it. Like it just seems so likely he's going to the Lakers. Greatest athletes who have never won a championship. Um, who would be on that list? Charles Barkley, Ernie Banks never won a championship. Dick Butkus never won a championship. I mean, there's some great players Carl in the Carl Malone, John Stockton. I mean, there's some really good players. Grant Hill, who never won a championship. What's wrong with not winning a championship? Chris Webber, Artis Gilmore. Come on. It's just the culture now today. I don't know. Damian Lillard says he expects to be in Portland next season. Listen, punch it. October 24th, when the NBA tips off the new season, do you think Dame Lillard will be in Portland? It's the last, that's the last stand with Brian Custer. Damian Lillard with a I do at the end, giving his vows. C.J. McCollum doesn't agree necessarily. And C.J. recently had sushi and wine with Dame punch it i don't think I he's going to ask out i don't think he's going to request out but i i will say this i think based on how the draft goes and what happens leading up to the draft if they're not positioned to have what we consider a title contending team or a puncher's chance he's a boxer right he just wants a puncher's chance and right now they do not have a puncher's chance i think the fans can recognize that the rest of the league can recognize that then i think they will have a discussion where they try to figure out what's best for him and where he should go we talked about miami We've talked about Brooklyn. We've talked about your Knicks. I don't think your Knicks are going to be able to get them, but you never know in this business. It's more about what teams can offer for Dame. Who has the right assets? Because he can want to go where he wants to go. You can want him to go to a big market or to Boston or to all of these cities, but the pieces have to work. And I think for them as an organization, they're at a crossroad. If I was a betting man, I would say this is the last that we've seen of him there. Um, if I was a betting man, I, I would say... This is the last we've seen of him there. But I'm not a betting man, and I think he's going to let this play out. I think the organization is really going to see what they can honestly get both ways in terms of potentially moving D or potentially pairing him with a Mikael Bridges or someone of that caliber.
Look, I think uh, C.J. McCollum's got a source there who's talking with him. But I think, you know, you, the, the overriding feeling that I have is that Damian Lillard's not going to be the guy, kind of player who raises his hand and says, trade me, I won't play here. I don't think he's going to do that to the Blazers. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's his style. But where's the right place for him? C.J. mentions it. And see, I like that C.J.'s talking about what's right for Portland, not just what's right for Damian Lillard. you got a, a lot of national media members who will just throw out the biggest markets because they find that to be the most interesting conversation that they can have. But I think it really would depend on who can offer the most. And if I'm the Blazers, I'm thinking about the timeline of the number three pick. I'm thinking about the timeline of a shade and sharp. I'm thinking about how many draft picks and and from what team are they coming from. Because I don't want bad draft picks. But I think it'll be an interesting exploration. At the very least, if you are in the camp that says Dame's got to go, I'm interested in the future of the franchise. I think you can take comfort in the fact that you don't see a loss of leverage right now for the Blazers and Joe Cronin, the general manager. That it still very much looks like Lillard would be happy to be here if the Blazers, you know, are are, going to make some kind of effort to build around him. He hasn't yet raised his hand and said, move me or else. Uh, Meanwhile, if you're in the camp that says, you know, no, no, I want to build around Lillard, again, same same benefit same silver lining we're not hearing Lillard say I want out we're hearing him say I do expect to be in Portland he said I do and and it's really important that he doesn't say it publicly because it once he does then everyone knows he has to be traded but we've talked about timing right the timing of this trade if you are to trade Damian Lillard timing is everything it's hard to go out in the NBA right now and look and see what team actually fits for Damian Lillard is it Miami is it Brooklyn like What is Portland getting back in that situation? Do you really just want to trade him and get Tyler Hero and pieces and like late first round picks? I don't know if that's what you want. So I think it's really important that Dame, you know, if he does want out, that he doesn't publicly say it and then keeps the leverage with the Blazers because time is everything with this one. It may not be this offseason, it may be next offseason where you know the trade market goes up for Dame. But I think timing right now, it's very interesting to see what the Blazers are going to do with uh, Damian Lillard. Let's talk some football. The Jets. uh... How good can they be? Bill Barnwell thinks the Jets are not close to a Super Bowl, even with Aaron Rodgers. What does he mean? Punch him. And I would put the Jets. What? Even with Aaron Rodgers in last place. I don't see why this is a crazy opinion. They were in last place last year. It's not like this is that insane of a, of a thought. And I'll point this out as well. They were 7-10 and 10 last year. When they had to play the opposing team's starting quarterback, or the, their primary quarterback, I should say, they were 2-8. and eight. When they were playing the backups, when they were playing Trubisky, when they were playing the third stringers, they were 5-2. and two. This is not a team that was as close to winning a Super Bowl as I think they have put out there. Now, they'll be better with Aaron Rodgers, but I think they're just not as good of a team as we're, we're sort of suggesting. Look, uh, I, I, I disagree with Barnwell. I think a great quarterback or an experienced, very good quarterback, a future Hall of Fame quarterback, uh, gives you a uh, a leg up and I think the Jets have done some things outside of Aaron Rodgers to make themselves better I do think they'll be a bigger contender but a, a big piece of this depends upon you know who around them in the AFC East gets better takes a step forward takes a step back and, and the AFC in general I mean there are a lot of really interesting 
teams last year in the playoffs, the Chargers, the Jaguars. You have the Chiefs, as always. The Bills look like they'll be back and knocking on the door again. The Bengals are going to be there. So, yeah, I mean, they're, you know, how good can the Dolphins be uh, moving forward? And do are the, Bills, are the Bills going to pick up where they left off, so to speak, last season, the regular season? And, and are, are they going to be focused and locked in on vengeance in the playoffs? Like, there's a lot of questions around them, but I think the Jets are going to be better. I think the Jets are going to be a playoff team, and I think Aaron Rodgers, when you put him in a situation with a new surrounding with a lot to prove, I you know, I'm just not betting against that. It shows the parody of the NFL. Barnwell says they're fourth in the AFC East. Vegas says they're fourth in the AFC. So, you know, it, it's a big gap right there. <laughs> but, you know, it's just whatever you think. You know, if you think they're going to be good, there's uh, the chances to bet on them. If you uh, think they're going to be bad, then you can make some money this year too. Greg McElroy talking about DJ Uyengalele the Oregon State quarterback. What, give me a scout on him. Here he is. Punch it. DJ Uwe Angalale. Now, his, he's not yet officially the starting quarterback, but I do believe that here in the near term, he's probably going to be anointed as such. Let's just remember who DJ Uwe Angalale was back in 2020. The two starts that he made in the ACC for Clemson against both Boston College and against Notre Dame the guy was really, really good. Now, he lost his way a little bit, lost some of the confidence there in 2021, bounced back early in 2022, threw for 10 touchdowns in his first four games. That was more than he had in the entire 2021 season. And then things came off a little bit towards the end. But now DJ Uwe Ungele gets a fresh start. And he gets a fresh start in an offense that's not going to put so much on his shoulders. It's going to be an offense that wants to run the football, control the line of scrimmage, heavy play action. And one thing DJ Iwiungale can do is he can push the ball down the field off play action. So I think it is a perfect spot for him to end up. He's not going to be operating in the spotlight. He's not going to have people asking him a million questions. He's not going to have to do a bunch of ESPN and Fox interviews. There's less pressure. There's lower expectations. And now he gets a new lease on life at Oregon State's. Yeah, look, I, I think he's going to have a lot to prove, and I'm interested to see what DJ looks like in an offense that is a run-first offense. Oregon State runs the ball as good as anybody in the Pac-12, better than most. Leave it here. Peter Jacobson coming up top of the hour. What does he make of the LIV PGA mess? we got a lot of ground to cover this hour. We're going to talk NFL. We're going to talk uh, NBA. We're going to talk about the Pac-12 Conference. John Wilner will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about uh, you know what he sees on the horizon. I reported it today at johnconzano.com. Hope you're reading me there. Get a free subscription. Get a paid subscription. But I reported today that the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors have verbally agreed on the grant of rights matters, meaning the revenue distributions... Oregon and Washington have to be happy because uh, it includes an incentive for the college football playoff. Basically, if you make the CFP, you get to keep a larger share. There's still a media rights deal that needs to be signed, and that is a hurdle that the Pac-12 is going to have to get over. But this is an important step, and it kind of shows that the 10 universities are galvanized. Our next guest was the very first guest on this radio show. Oh, 17 years ago, seems like yesterday, that Peter Jacobson joined us to talk about his love for the University of Oregon and the state of Oregon and golf in general. And he is a father. He is a grandfather. He's a graduate of Lincoln High School in Portland, played golf at Oregon, turned professional, 
He's uh, won PGA events. He has uh, had a successful broadcasting career. Man of the world, Peter Jacobson, joining us. How's that intro? How'd I do? You know, John, that just tells me what I already know, that I'm old, as are you. (laughs) I know. I look up and I go, man, it just was like yesterday. We were sitting here. It was like 2007. We had Peter. And you know what? It was intentional that you were the first guest. I wanted a true Oregonian, and I wanted somebody who was from this state because, Peter, they could have kicked me off air 15 minutes later, and at least I could have said I interviewed Peter Jacobson. <laughs> well, I believe uh, President Barack Obama fit in there somewhere, didn't he? Yeah, he was right after you. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you were the wow. opening act, though. <laughs> wow, yeah. Oh, that, that's fantastic. How you doing? I'm doing well. I, I will get to the LIV PGA stuff, but wh- tell people what you're doing now. Where are you? What, what are you up to? You, you were on a plane yesterday. Yeah, I was on a plane. I'm, I'm in New York. Boy, the, the air quality is bad. It, uh, a lot of us in the state of Oregon that have lived through the, the forest fires, they're having forest fires up in Canada. I'm, I'm, I'm up in, uh, like I said, up in New York, and we're getting – a lot of the the air quality problems that we have in Oregon from time to time, and and it's uh, yeah, it's hazy and you can smell it. So no matter where you are in the country, that that's the worst thing you could you could imagine: forest fires ravaging any part of the land, whether it's United States, Canada, or anywhere else in the world. You uh, you are watching this PGA stuff unfold, and I know we talked to you last year about a year ago about it, and. Pumpkin Ridge was hosting the first event uh, that LIV was putting out. And what do you make of the reversal, the, the, you know, these two entities coming back together and saying, all right, we're going to get married, never mind the fighting? Well, I don't know if it's so much of a marriage. It, it's, it's not a merger, and that's the one thing. As you well know, uh, headline writers are always looking for quick, short, uh, impactful headlines. Merger is not a word that I would use because it's not a merger. This is a, I would call it a meeting of the minds from what I know. Now, again, I I haven't been privy to all the inside information. I don't know who has, but from what I've gleaned from, from sources and friends of mine, the PGA Tour, let, let, let me back up. Money, as you know, dominates the world of sports. And from what I understand, the PIF, the Public Investment Fund from Saudi Arabia, they wanted to own the world of golf. So they were going to do it any way they possibly could. That's why Live was born. They wanted to do their own tour. They wanted to be able to control the game. And that's why they paid hundreds of millions of dollars to these players to defect from the tour. Or I shouldn't say defect. Basically, they paid these players to retire from the PGA Tour. Brooks, Phil, Bryson, a lot of these players, they just stopped playing on the PGA Tour, which is their right. If somebody came to me and gave me $200 million to go home and not play on the PGA Tour or not do broadcasting, I'd have to take a long, hard look at it. So (laughs) they wanted to be able to get involved in golf in a big way, and they did. I think... Obviously, attitudes change and and things shift in the game of golf, like in any sport. And I think the PGA Tour was kind of up against it. We had a big litigation going with the 
public in, uh, investment fund, the PIF, the Saudi Arabia group, and we all know how much money they have, and they could probably get into some protracted litigation that's going to cost billions of dollars and take years. So I'm not speaking for Monahan. I don't know this, but something tells me that he he decided that he was going to take the easy way out, the financially the financially prudent way out, join forces. They're forming a new company. Uh, so a lot of the money that's going that used to go to live is going to go into the PJ tour now. So again, all the, de- the details have, have yet to be flushed out. It's a memorandum of understanding from what I hear. So there's nothing set in stone and the details are still to be ironed out, which, which is scary in its own right. Help us out because You've been privy to those, uh, you know, meetings when tour players need to discuss matters and discuss where, you know, what direction the tour is going to play. As a player on the tour, not being looped in by Monaghan, how big of a problem is that? Or do you think most guys are going to understand, hey, you needed to do that in order to get the deal done? I think it's a big problem right now that nobody was looped in. I think it's a public perception. Certainly it's a player perception. A lot of these players that that held the line, that stayed loyal to the tour, that passed up the, the millions from from live tour, I think feel a little bit betrayed maybe would be a good word or shocked, left kind of standing at the altar because everybody has expressed their support for the tour as I have been. And all of a sudden it turns around and nobody knows the details, as I said. And one of the things that I've always learned to do, I've put my foot in my mouth many times and I've jumped to conclusions when when the best the best case would be to wait until you know all the details. And and that's what I'm choosing to do. I really trust I've been on the policy board three times over my years and the independent directors that sit on the board and the commissioner at the time, we've only had four, and Jay is the fourth in the history of the PJ Tour when it was formed in 1969. I, I really trust these guys, and I think they're making the right decision on, on what is best for the PGA Tour players. But like I said, when I when I started, John, there were no title sponsors, there was no corporate money, and boy, you look at you look at the price of poker on the PGA Tour. You look at the Blazers organization. I read your article about Phil trying to buy the Blazers the other day. Look at how the franchise, the value of that franchise has changed in two years. So it is money. I think a lot of these people would, would, would claim long live the dollar because it's not going anywhere. Let's go back to, you know, your entrance onto the tour. Turned professional in 1976. The money was not what it is today. Did you at that time feel money was driving it, or has it just been in more recent years with television money and, and larger sponsorship deals entering the fray? Yeah, I think it's only been a, it's been a sea change probably over the last 20 years, 25 years. When I came out and played the tour, it was because I loved the game. I could raise a family and, and make a career uh, out of it, and, and I did. But again, the money, gosh, I used to run around the country on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and do pro-ams and clinics and appearances for 500 bucks 
a thousand bucks, jump on an airplane, fly from East Coast to West Coast to, for, for 500 bucks uh, because that was, that was my job. It, it bothers me now that it is all driven by the dollar. Look, we know that in the NBA and the NFL uh, and Major League Baseball, we see these huge contracts by these players, and I do not begrudge them. But the one thing about team sports is you're paid by either who you were or who the owner hopes you're going to be. What I've always loved about the game of golf is you get paid on what you do today. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel a bit of a departure from that. Live paid players on who they were and who they hope to be. Nobody got paid for who they are right now. And that's what the PGA Tour does. And I worry, I really worry about where, where it's going when it's all about dollars. Peter Jacobson, our guest, uh, professional golfer and commentator. The players who held an ethical, made an ethical stand, Tiger Woods, for example, he didn't need the money, but he could have, he could have joined the Live Tour and made $800 million, and he made a million dollars a hole for playing the tournaments. Um, I have to wonder what he and some of the other players who, who stood the line, what, how they're going to feel about you know, maybe engaging and having to uh, having to see this merger come back together. Let me just put you in that in that position because I don't want you to speak for someone else. If you were one of those golfers, Peter, who had given up that kind of money, and and uh, you know, out of principle, and then saw the tour flip flop, how would you handle that? Would that be a private conversation with Monahan? Would you be hopping mad? You know, how much of a team player publicly do you have to be with the PGA Tour? I would, I would, as I said earlier, I would m- want to make sure I knew every aspect, every every piece of information, all the details before I made a, a final decision. But based on what you just said, if I had been in my prime and had been 100, offered 100 to 200 billion dollars, it, it it'd be a hard thing to stomach. But one of the things I want to point out is, Liv paid these players to basically retire. They basically paid them to be the Harlem Globetrotters of golf. It's a it's a highly paid, highly skilled exhibition with with the the outcome is of no consequences. It's like the Globetrotters beating the Washington Generals over and over and over again. Now with this new situation, we don't know if there's going to be a live tour in 24 or beyond. Nobody knows that, hmm. and that's part of the. That's part of the speculation that everybody has right now as to what's Liv going to do? Where are the players going to go? Are they going to come back? Are they going to keep their money? Are they, are they going to face a suspension? Are they going to face a fine? Nobody knows that. Those would be the questions that I would be asking right now. You mentioned uh, Phil Knight. We're, you know, we've been talking a lot about him potentially – owning the Blazers. Uh, you, you've gotten to know him over the years, and as an Oregon grad, you're familiar with his success and his story. Um, what kind of owner, NBA team owner, you know the Blazers, what kind of owner would Knight be if he ever got that chance? I think Phil would be a tremendous owner. Don't, don't forget, I went down into the bowels of Nike way back, probably 80, 81, with a, with a designer named Rick Long, and uh, and Peter Moore, and we, we built the first golf shoe. 
mm-hmm. and walked upstairs and dropped it on Phil's desk and Rob Strasser, the late Rob Strasser, and for everybody that's watched that movie Air about Phil signing Michael Jordan, that's pretty true to form. Uh, we walked up there and dropped the golf shoe on his desk, and Phil said, Peter, you know how much I dislike golf. And I said, yeah, but guys like Jordan and Robinson and Barkley love golf. So he begrudgingly gave me the gave us, I should say, a budget to be able to create a golf shoe, and the rest is history. We know how great the Nike golf shoe line has been and, and will continue to be. But Phil Knight is an open, understanding kind of guy that I think would be a fantastic owner. And I think just all you have to do is look at the success of Nike from where it was when it was Blue Ribbon Sports. When I was stacking boxes for Peter Moore at Blue Ribbon Sports to where Nike is today, I think that speaks volumes about what a fantastic owner Phil would be. You played alongside uh, Kevin Costner in Tin Cup. We bring up sports movies. That movie always comes up as one of the best sports movies. I got to know what Costner was like on a set of a movie. Costner was unbelievable. Don't forget Ron Sheldon, who had done White Men Can't Jump and Bull Durham. He wanted to feel like a PGA Tour event. There were there were probably fifteen or twenty PGA Tour event PGA Tour players that were on set at any one time. We rotated in and rotated out. But Costner was Costner loved golf. He worked with his with with his buddy Gary McCord on his golf swing, and on set he was so great to the to the pros, to the actors, to the extras that stood in the gallery watching him pump pump three woods into that water on eighteen. But we had footballs. There were baseball gloves and uh, and, and baseballs. There was a lot of camaraderie and a lot of fun. On the set, I, I just I just can't tell you how much fun Kevin Costner was when we shot that movie. We're talking to Peter Jacobson, professional golfer and commentator. Um, you know, there, golf I think lends itself to great storytelling because of the downtime between rounds, because of the downtime that you have maybe uh, you know when you're on the course. Even you know, I'm watching baseball with the pitch clock. And I'm thinking, you know what we're losing, Peter, is we're losing like the Vin Scully broadcaster who can tell a story during an inning because the game has, has been sped up. Um, you know, as you have talked over the years at banquets and at golf events, you know, you always tell great stories about what the tour was like and what it is like. What What are your memories when, you know, you got comfortable on the tour and guys let their guard down? Who pops into your mind when I when I say that? You know, what what the scene was like, if you could take us with you. I was so lucky, John, when I got my card, I signed with Mark McCormick right out of college. And I was thrown in with the likes of Gary Player and Arnold Palmer and Raymond Floyd, uh, Curtis Strange, who's still one of my best friends today. He and I were young rookies signed with IMG. And, and, it, and it's different than team sports because back then we would be thrown into a pro-am on a Monday in, in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and those players, Palmer, Floyd, uh, Bob Golby, they would just say, guys, nice to meet you. Just watch us and do what we do. So we would do a clinic, we'd play golf, and then we'd have dinner. And it was a, it was a master class in how to interact with people, how to get along with people. Don't forget, when a golf pro plays in a pro-am with four brand-new people, he has to read that room. He has to read those four players 
and try to figure out the nuance of those individuals and their games quickly uh, so they enjoy their four-and-a-half, five-hour round together. But I think the guy that I learned the most from was, was Arnold. Arnold. Arnold never had a bad day. He never met someone that didn't feel like they were his best friend. And I, I, all of us were so lucky to be able to walk with Arnold, play with Arnold, and just be around him when he greeted people. He didn't blow anybody off. Someone would walk up to Arnold on a golf course or in the clubhouse or on the street or in a bar, and they would recognize Arnold, and Arnold would turn, look them in the eye, shake their hand, and, and, and kibitz with them. And, and that, I think that's missing in the world. I, I think one of the things, kindness costs you nothing to be kind to somebody. In fact, you have to work hard at being a jerk. You've got, you've got to think about it. And and so I, I, when I go back to those days, and I, I remember when I first started doing TV at the Skins game, I did it with Vin Scully, with Don Olmeyer and Vin Scully. And I remember hearing Vin tell the stories and the way that he would weave a story in between the shots at the Skins game. If you remember the Skins game over Mm -hmm. Thanksgiving with the four players, he would weave in great stories uh, and, and different, different comments and little funny, little funny, little anecdotes about the players that, that I was always, I was always amazed at at those at those wordsmiths, the people that could really turn a phrase and tell a story. So, uh, I count myself really lucky to have come along when I did to be able to to meet people. Was I the best player in golf? No. Was I the worst? No. But I certainly had a chance to watch and learn from the best in the game. Give me an idea, though. Eighty three and eighty six. You're at the PGA Championship. You finish in the top three. You know you uh, you're playing well. Are is it is it uh, when you're in that kind of setting and you're headed to a Sunday and you're in the hunt, is it, uh, does it change your mentality? Do you wake up a little less cordial to people around you, a little more focused? Or how do you manage that as a player? Because you kind of want to keep, you want to be loose, but also focused. Yeah, no, you're right. And, and, that, and that's, a great, that's a great question. I think one of the things that the tour has always done with PGA Tour or the the majors uh, major championships is they understand that. So when a player parks his car and he walks into the clubhouse, uh, that's the one thing. When I'm doing television and I'm on the range, l- looking at players, watching them prepare, I don't bother them. If Rory or Tiger or or Victor Hovland comes back to me and talks to me, I will I will talk to them. But I don't go up and bother them. I don't get up in their face and ask them questions. And I think that's the one thing to do. But, again, I'll go back to what I learned from Arnold. When people came up to ask you a question, it was because they genuinely liked you or they genuinely liked the game. And you had, you had one opportunity to impress upon him, that person, that him, that girl or man or child, uh, how much you love the game in return and how much you appreciate them being there. And I think from player to Palmer to Nicholas, I think we all we all, all learn those valuable lessons over time. Peter Jacobson, you're the best. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, you know, I want to know more. And I think you're right. The devil's going to be in the details when we see 
what this partnership looks like. And maybe it ends up being that, hey, they just wanted an investment stake in the PGA, and that's the concession that Monaghan made to, to, to make it go away. But do you think, last question, do you think the golfers who were sort of outspoken LIV ambassadors, will they be welcomed back with open arms by the tour players? I think that's probably the question of the day. I think a lot of players that left and took the live money and went away, if they did, let me give you an example. Harold Varner III, one of the few black players on tour. Harold Varner took the money. I love Harold Varner, and I miss seeing him play. He took the money, and he went, but he was very honest. He said, I love the tour, but I'm taking this. This is, this is generational money for me and my family. He went away, he played his golf, and he never said anything bad about anybody on the tour. Somebody like Harold Varner, I think, would be welcomed back with open arms. But there are a couple other players, and you know probably who I'm talking about, that had a lot of critical, negative, angry comments and tweets about the PGA Tour. Let's not forget the PGA Tour gave them the platform that made them who they are. It's like your mom and dad raising you and sending you to Stanford and all of a sudden turning your back on your mom and dad saying, you know what? I don't know them a thing. They, they didn't do me. They didn't do me a solid when I was a kid. So some players will be a welcome back. Probably others. I want to tell you one last story, John, and I don't mean yeah, to be long with it. No, we got all kinds of time. 1994. I was playing with Arnold Palmer in Greg Norman's shark shootout in LA. Norman called an emergency player meeting up in the boardroom. We all went up there, and it was the players at the time, my my, my guys, Crenshaw, Litke, Payne Stewart, Curtis, Nick Price, uh, that, that type of player. And Norman presented the World Tour, which we know now as the Live Tour. He presented it back in 94, and he said we'd all have to quit the tour. We'd have to rescind our membership, resign our membership from the tour, and join his tour, and it was all money. Last place was a hundred grand. First place was five hundred grand. It was money, money, money. And we all looked at each other in the in the room. And Arnold was sitting to my right, and he looked at Greg and he said, "Greg, do you remember the big three? And Greg said, "Yeah, that was you, Gary Player, and Jack Nicholas." Arnold said, "That's right." How many times do you think people approached us about leaving the tour and forming our own tour? And Greg said, probably quite a few. He said, yep. And you know why we didn't do it? Because it would have been bad for the game. It would have confused the fans. It would have confused the players. And it would confuse the communities and the charities we support in those communities. And he looked at all of us and he said, you guys are all young. You do whatever you want. But I don't want a thing to do with this. And he got up, walked out, and slammed the door. Wow. And guess what? He was right. Because there is so much acrimony and confusion and backbiting in the game of golf. It reminds me of politics, Democrats versus the Republicans, and I hate that. I hate that for the game. Peter Jacobson, you're the best. Thank you for giving us your time. You got it, John. Thanks for having me. Take All care. Right. There he is. Jake, good stuff from Peter Jacobson, first guest ever on this radio program, and uh Always appreciate hearing from him and getting his uh, expertise, especially the stories that he could tell, like that story right there. It's going to be really interesting to see where this all lands. Uh, is this a merger? No, says uh, Jacobson. No, says uh, 
Golf's Jay Monahan, PGA Tours Jay Monahan, but uh, where are the details? Let let's see the letter of agreement. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth. I don't know how you fe- felt about that interview just a moment ago, but uh, it's interviews like that that really remind me that like sometimes the best part of the show is just when we're having a conversation with somebody who's got expertise that is uh, beyond uh, comprehension in a lot of ways. There's, there's just a level of expertise that an individual like Peter Jacobson has in being around golf for the better part of, you know, 45, 50 years and playing on the tour and playing on the championships tour and playing in the Masters and playing uh, in the PGA Championship and the British Open and uh, being a guy who, uh, you know, has been a top 10 finisher three times in three majors and, you know, seven wins on the tour, uh, two champion wins, and now a golf commentator. But this guy was the, uh, in 1996, was the, uh, you know, number 15 golfer in uh, in the rankings. And great career, golf channel, and then on to uh, obviously being part of uh, the television broadcast that you see now uh, with golf. Uh, Stephen, let, let's do some quick takeaways from that interview. Uh, I thought it was really wise that Jacobson said, you know, I put him in the position of Tiger Woods in particular. Tiger Woods was offered $800 million to basically play 754 holes of golf last year. If he had gone to the LIV Tour, he would have made more than a million dollars per hole played. He turned it down, matter of ethics, stayed with the tour that made him great and provided the opportunities for him. He's now watching golf, uh, you know, basically take the money. I thought it was interesting for Jacobson to say, I asked him, how would you feel? And he says, basically, I would first want to know all the details of what's going to happen. That is a very mature outlook because most of us would just have a knee-jerk reaction. And I think, you know, I do find myself being, uh, you know, I go to send that email. I may hold it for 24 hours now, you know, (laughs) if you know what I mean. You go to you go to fire off that text that when you're fired up about something and you go ah you know what what's the good that comes out of that? Peter Jacobson a very measured approach at 69 years old saying I would want to know the details. What else jumped out at you or what'd you think of that? Yeah that that comment really jumped out because it's like I'm with you I would just freak out right away like I would be mad that PGA made this deal be like and I just turned down 800 million dollars like why did I do this? But no, you know Peter Jacobson, great, great mindset. Says you know what, let's 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 relax a little bit, let's figure it out, and then figure it out at the next play. I thought that was great. The stories were great as well. I mean, the fact that you know he's talking about this kind of happened back in the day, and they just put their foot down. Jack Nicholas has said, you know, it's not you know the money is it's not even about that. Like let's not make it about that. And slams the door. It it's, it shows the real the the funness of sports sometimes, right? Like it's it shouldn't be about the money, but it is because it's their job. But sometimes we just want to have the pure joy of sports, and some guys, some guys have that. Some guys, it's not even necessarily about all the money. They're going to make money and make life-changing money, and that is. But sometimes it's not, and it's always refreshing to hear you know some of the best that ever to do it uh, have that kind of feeling about it. Yeah, I think, too, you know, I thought it was interesting because right away he corrected me when I said, you know, how do you feel about this marriage? And he says, wait a minute, it's not a marriage. It's not a merger. It's, you know, it may be gone, like live may be gone here in the coming years. I think that's an interesting point that I think the problem that Jay Monahan, the PGA commissioner, has is that everybody saw the fight 
and now they've seen kind of the resolution, and it looks as though, okay, these two things are going to merge together and whatnot, but not a merger, not a marriage. It may just be as simple as the LIV money is coming into the PGA fold. They're going to let them be an investor, and they're going to take, you know, they're going to take the money, and I think that's a really interesting distinction as well. But... But isn't it still the same thing? Isn't it still? Kind of, yeah, to you and I, a hundred percent. To me, it's still the same thing. Where they're just they're taking the money. That's what it's about. And they're still whether they want to say they're you know merging with LIV or it's just a deal with the LIV or they're just taking their money. Like they're still in bed with the LIV. And they said they weren't going to. They said you know we have, we have ethics and we have stuff to go against. And they went against all those words that they said all of a sudden in one big swoop without telling anybody. So it, do just, you do you think it would be different though if? They had never been competing entities, and the PGA Tour just took an investment from, that had Saudi fingerprints on it. I think it's a little different, yes, because they were so against it, and it, was, it wasn't it was just this is our competitor. It was this is hateful, and we don't stand for what they what they are, and it's like they were being shunned. They weren't allowed to be in, you know, be in the same arena as the PGA Tour. Like, we are way above this group. Um, you know, we're not about that, and then all of a sudden – well, you're gonna pay us enough money, we'll take it. So I don't I I think it'd be a little different had they not been so out in the open and against what Live Golf was about from the get go. I mean it wasn't just like you know, in the middle of it. It was once they formed, yeah. they were against it. And they were outspoken about it. Uh it really interesting to see how this all shakes out, but it's just a great interview. I love the storytelling as well and and love uh hearing from him, uh you know, hearing from Peter Jacobson. Uh, as uh, as he uh, sort of digests this, and I, I think we really did hear him sort of wrapping his mind around it and wrapping his mind around sort of the idea that this is happening. Uh, all right, coming up, we'll have the 5 at 5 coming up top of the hour. John Wilner, Bay Area News Group, will be joining us in the 5 p.m. hour. Wilner told me something today, and I'm going to ask him more about it. He told me he believes that the Pac-12 knows the media rights numbers that they're going to get and that they feel good about them that he felt that there was a shift in mentality in February and March, and suddenly the Pac-12 kind of started going, we know we're going to be okay. What did he mean by that? I'll ask him coming up in the 5 o'clock hour as the Pac-12 is looking to put all of this behind it. Ten members, uh, I reported it today in case you're just tuning in, you missed it. Uh, if you read me at johnconzano.com, you know this, but the Pac-12 uh, presidents and chancellors over the last month or so have come to an agreement on the grant of rights. Now, what is the grant of rights? Well, it's all the stuff that isn't the media rights. It's revenue sharing when it comes to the media rights deal, what kind of sponsorships can be sold by the conference, uh, what kind of rights the, uh, you know, air quotes here, rights include. Uh, like, does it include data rights? Does it include, uh, you know, tier one, tier two? So all of that is spelled out in the grant of rights. The biggest takeaway I had is that the Pac-12, like the ACC and some others, are going to an incentive-based distribution when it comes to the college football playoff. Oregon and Washington have to love this. And I think it is the move that makes Oregon and Washington really feel good about being part of the Pac-12. Because Oregon and Washington value college football playoff access, and they're spending more than some others to try to get that. So the budget's at Oregon and Washington higher than some other schools. Well... I am told by sources that the grant of rights has an incentive-based uh, layout when it comes to the college football playoff, meaning if you make the playoff, you keep a larger share 
uh, Oregon fans, Washington fans have to love that. You know, if you're an Oregon State fan, you probably love it because you probably see an opportunity for your school to get there. We'll talk more about that in the 5 o'clock hour. But I want to talk about PGA and LIV. What did you make of what Peter Jacobson said? Uh, Is there a clean way out of this for the PGA? Will you watch going forward? And how would you feel? Let's just, I want to put you in the shoes of Tiger Woods. You turned down $800 million to go play 754 holes of golf. Now you're watching the PGA flip-flop. How would you feel about that? 503-417-7575. thought we had a mostly healthy discussion yesterday on the LIV PGA topic, and I, I do appreciate that in our audience. I appreciate even the, the people who called in that did not agree with me or, you know, even the guy, one guy called in and wanted to make it a little bit political. Um and I, I said we're not doing that. I don't, I just don't, I don't want this show to turn into like, you know, it, sh- it shouldn't be a politics show. It just shouldn't. You know, we all have viewpoints. I get it. But we go to the ballpark. We sit alongside each other. We don't necessarily have to hit each other over the head with, you know, are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? Or how do you feel about, you know, we don't need to do that to each other. We're not going to change anybody's mind on this show. But I appreciate everyone can have that discussion. I want to have a little bit more of it here. You heard Peter Jacobson weigh in. You heard his thoughts on LIV golf and the tour and the conundrum that golf finds itself in. And, you know, I I heard a lot from Peter Jacobson about wanting to see and hear more. I want to know what you're thinking about all this 24 hours later. 503-417-7575 is the number. Charlie's in Vancouver. Charlie, welcome to the conversation. Thank you, sir. Great subject. Um, I heard some people talking earlier, I think it was on the Golf Channel, and they just really, really skimmed over it really quick. But they talked about one of the factors might be why they decided to, okay, hey, let's give in and go with, you know, the merger. Is it, uh, we're not so sure we want our, all of our nonprofit dealings over the years to be public. Um, all of a sudden when Liv came out, all of a sudden the PGA had a ton of money to start paying these guys more money. Well, if they're a nonprofit, where was all that money before? I know they're doing things called the first tee and stuff like that, but I challenge you to go down to almost any golf course. I mean, I golf a lot, and I will see 1% of minorities on the course, and that's on a strong day. And it's getting better, but it's kind of the truth. I think I just feel like, you know, we're getting kind of black and white as far as what's good and what's not, and I think there was a lot of gray in there. Uh, that that they didn't want to be found public. And just like your opinion on that, if you think that might be a possibility. Yeah, I think it's a real possibility. They didn't want to open the books. Uh, you know, the Department of Justice was poking around the antitrust exemption that the PGA Tour has as well. They're also a 501 organization, meaning that I think their 501c6 is their distinction under the uh, IRS code. It, it allows them some tax-exempt status. I don't think the PGA Tour wanted to open the books. No matter what you hear, no matter what anybody tries to make this about, it's probably just about money and may just be about the fact that the PGA Tour knew that if they were going to get into an extended fight with LIV Golf, there was a really good chance they were going to have to open the books and the DOJ was going to look into their status. And I think, Charlie, you're hitting all around it. I don't think this was about ethics or a sudden realization from the PGA Tour that, you know, maybe it's not so bad. This is the way of the world. I I 100% think 
the PGA Tour was afraid of what staying in a fight with LIV would mean for their bottom line and the bigger picture. And that, to me, is interesting. If I'm the DOJ, I mean, aren't you going today like, hey, uh, let's get in there and rummage around anyway? Like, what are they, what are they uh, trying to run from? Should they have that distinction? Uh, have they fostered a non-competitive atmosphere? You know, it's, it's entirely possible that this whole thing that is not at all about, you know, the LIV tournament and Saudi money and how they feel like they, PGA just may be running. And maybe LIV Golf knew that. Maybe they knew their way in was to pit themselves against the PGA and then end up in a lawsuit. And, you know, some people have predicted that this is how it would end up. Um, I, also in that Jacobson interview, he talked about Phil Knight. I love that he brought that up because it opened the door for me to ask him about, you know, what kind of owner would Phil be? And you could hear the love in Jake's voice. Like Peter Jacobson has some love for Phil Knight, doesn't he, Stephen? He does. And uh, I think as a, you know, a, a fan of the Blazers and a guy who wants the Blazers to be good, you know, I talked about ownership being overrated, which I think it is a little overrated. But I would much rather have Phil Knight in there than what they got. So uh, it made me a little happy. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, look, I think, you know, there's a lot of push right now publicly for Blazer fans. So everybody's talking about the Lillard and uh, the conundrum they have with the number three pick. You know, it is a dilemma. There's no there's no singular answer here available. There's no there's no upside. Like, that is the definite, that is the definition of a dilemma, essentially, is that there, you know, there isn't an answer here that has, you know, one clear desirable path it's a difficult choice you've got two or more alternatives really with the franchise and there's an undesirable path in which Damon Damian Lillard leaves the franchise okay that's not desirable like that's not a great path going to pivot away from Damian Lillard that's it's not something you would you, you know you'd want to lean into him but the problem is on uh, that you know that's the left-hand turn you know pivot away from Lillard the right-hand turn is turn into Lillard, and then you also go, well, wait a minute, that's not desirable either because if you do that, you're really saying mortgage the future, and I'm not sure that you can do better than maybe be in the sixth seed if you take the right-hand turn. That's not a desirable path either. And then the other path is let's go straight ahead, just keep Lillard, draft a player at number three, and there's a problem with that too because if you do that, there's a potential that Lillard gets so frustrated at some point he does what what he should not do, and that is to demand a trade and to say, I want out, and oh, by the way, you might not be good anyway. And so that's a dilemma. Like, it is a problem or it is a logical argument that has unfavorable alternatives. You know, and you can tell me, hey, well, wait a minute. What if, what if we look at it favorably? Yeah, you can, and I am. I'm saying, look, if you trade Lillard, you are leaning into your future, and you are setting yourself up for your future, but the problem is you're going to lose some games in the short term. And I know I'm hearing from a lot of fans who just don't want to do that. They would just like to see the Blazers ride this out, try to be the sixth seed, and then deal with it later. But to me, that's kind of like getting a bill in the mail and sticking it in a drawer and thinking it went away. You know, the bill's come and due. The Blazers are going to have to – wake up one day and go, hey, Damian Lillard's too old to contribute, and do you really want to be sitting on a guy that is too old to con contribute and is making 50 to $60 million? I don't.
if I'm the Blazers. Well, here's the thing. It's, you know, we've seen this in sports, and the Patriots were always the famous ones to do that. They traded the guy a year earlier than a year late, right? And I think that's my spot with the Blazers is Damian Lillard is an all-NBA player right now, and you know we've talked to people from Utah, and they if Utah said if they can get two or three years of elite Dame, that's what they want, and I think that's what they could get is two to three years. But at the same time, if you hold on to him for another two years, is anyone else going to give him give him value back at what you want? Like this may be the most valuable time you could trade him. Now, is there a team out there that wants to give up those picks and those players? Maybe not. So maybe you hold on to him for one more year. But I don't want to be stuck with Dame when he's 36 and there's no value on his contract and there's really no end in sight of what you're looking at. So for me, like I would rather get out a year early because they've tried with Dame. They tried the last couple of years. It just hasn't worked. And Dame has done all he's can to do uh, to try to bring a winner to Portland. It just hasn't worked out. So for me, like I would rather make sure you get value for the guy than lose out on all value and then just be stuck with the, you know, with an asset that you can't even get rid of or you can't get any value for. And the other part of this, I, I hear a lot of people who say, that they want to do what's right for Damian Lillard. And I'm a little puzzled by that. i got to be honest. I'm I'm perplexed by that. I get it. People become fans of players. I understand that. But I don't, and I've never thought this way. As a fan growing up, as you know, a kid who grew up rooting for the 49ers, I watched the 49ers give up on Roger Craig and Ronnie Lott. I watched Joe Montana go to the Kansas City Chiefs. And I understood, hey, there are a season for all things. That's part of it. Love that guy. But I never for a moment said when when it was a conversation, when Steve Young's waiting in the wings and the 49ers have Joe Montana, I never for a moment went, no, they should stay with Montana and do what's best for him. It was always about what's best for the franchise. Damian Lillard has made hundreds of millions of dollars staying in Portland. And I'll, I'll draw upon a quote from Don Draper in Mad Men. You know, he, he'd say, that's what the money's for. Damian Lillard's loyalty has been rewarded. And I don't blame you if he leaves and he goes to another team and you see him in the NBA Finals for rooting for him. But I don't think the Blazers organization should do what's right for Damian Lillard. The Blazers organization has to think about itself. It has to be like... Oregon and Oregon State when it comes to the media rights deal. It has to be like the city of Portland when it comes to the Blazers lease. It has to be like you and your family when you're deciding where to live, what schools to go to, what job to take, you know, what car to drive. Do what's best for your family. Do what's best for you. You're not hurting anybody in that situation. The Blazers don't have an obligation to, to land Damian Lillard where he wants to be they just should do what's best for themselves get the maximum value for his for him when they decide to trade him and you know in the meantime try to build a team around him if if there's not a trade that you love out there and again don't self-impose a deadline that doesn't exist don't make a false deadline for yourself you know i know people who do that all the time the course of their day they'll be like you know i'm gonna i'm gonna schedule things here and here and here and you create deadlines for yourself that are self-imposed. The Blazers should not do that. It's insanity, and it'll lead you down a bad path. But they don't owe Lillard anything. And for Blazer fans who are going, I want to Damian Lillard to end up where he wants to be. Okay, that's fine that you like the guy and you respect him and you feel good about him, but you should be thinking about your franchise before you think about that player. Leave it here. Five o'clock hours still ahead.
I was just informed that uh, the BFT Foundation Celebrity Golf Tournament, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, coming up June 29th. You're going to get a live broadcast right here on 750 The Game, right here on uh, 1050 AM, Fox Sports Eugene, 960 AM in Klamath Falls, and also on 1490 in Roseburg, 1490 AM in Roseburg. It'll be a live broadcast, but I was just informed, not only are we going to have Jim Joyce, former Major League Baseball umpire who worked three World Series. We're also having another umpire. Dale Scott will be on the scene as well as a celebrity golfer. He's uh, he's in. So is uh, Ken Boddy of uh, Coin TV and Adam Bjornsson of Coin and Shante Liggins, the University of Portland men's basketball coach and former 49ers linebacker Mike Walter and Mark Wasikowski, the Oregon Ducks baseball coach, he's in. Scott Ruick, Oregon State women's basketball coach, he's in. Alex Molden, retired NFL defensive back, he'll be there. And Miss Oregon USA. Anna, how do I say Miss Oregon's name? Do you do you happen to know? I want to say Manju Bangalore. Yeah, close, I think. <laughs> do, you, do you know her claim to fame? Uh, other than Miss, being Miss Oregon? She has something else. Other than how she's going to be an astronaut someday? She interned at NASA. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. She is the first Miss Oregon to do a zero-gravity flight. How about that? Rad. Um, if you want to see the full list of celebrity golfers, or the growing list, I should say, because I'm still waiting for a couple confirmations, but you can go to baldfacetruth.org. <laughs> also, a uh, special thanks to Brandon and the team at High Caliber Millwrights. First Call Heating and Cooling, Gresham Ford, Shoe Mill Shoe Stores, White Claw. Drink some White Claw when you're on the course next time. Also, Breakside Brewery, thank you to them. And uh, a whole bunch of others, including um, Milwaukee Lumber and uh, our friends, of course, at Bricks Tavern and uh, the Candlish family. And uh, I'm thinking The Wall. i got to thank Rick and The Wall. They are always out there every year. Bridgetown Window and Door. I just want to thank everybody who makes that event a huge success. But our celebrity golf golfers are coming together, and I like it. Scott Ruick is going to play, and here's the bonus. Oregon State women's basketball coach. Yeah. His son, Cole, is on scholarship at Boise State as a college golfer. Okay. Scott's going to drive the cart. Cole's going to hit the shots. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So I asked him, I said, do you want to play? And then I pitched him. How about we have your kid hit the shots, you hang out, tell stories. <laughs> I love it. And he's like, are you telling me I can come out to the reserve <laughs> and I can ride around with my kid, watch him play golf, yeah, and tell stories about women's college basketball to uh, generous people? And I said, yes, that's what I'm asking of you. And uh, he said, I'm in. So oh, Scott, Scotty Ruick will be out there. I want to thank him for uh, donating <laughs> his time. Uh, i got to reach out to Kelly Graves now, see if Kelly Graves is down yeah. to play. Come on, Kelly. Who else can we get out there? Dana Altman, come on. It's one of those things where it's like, well, if this person does it. A lot of then, pressure. Yeah. That, Are I kind of think too? I kind of think that's how we got more than one Major League Baseball umpire. Right. Because when Dale Scott was being lobbied by some other celebrities, and Dale Scott, then I told him, I said, you know, Jim Joyce is going to be there. <laughs> And he was like, I'll play. He's not a good golfer. But I'm like, it, it's not that kind of tournament. No, it's really not. You can be a lousy golfer and have a great time at this event. Absolutely. But uh, we'll have a lot of fun, and you'll get to hear it as a listener on June 29th 
It's a Thursday at the Reserve Golf Course and Vineyards. I want to thank the Reserve for being such great hosts every year as well. Chris and the team there, they do a fantastic job. Ryan, they do a really nice job, and uh, I want to thank them for their support as well. But uh, we'll, you'll hear more about this event as it approaches. We're going to do the 5 at 5. Are you ready, Anna? Ready, ready. All right, here we go. The 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. The number one story, as Anna sees it, is... It's not often that I text you a story and I, I say, Hey, do you have the audio of this? And I did that today because I wanted the audio of Stephen A. Smith chatting with C.J. McCollum as they are talking about Damian Lillard's NBA future. And it's interesting because Smith really doesn't hold back. He's saying that he's been begging Lillard to get out of Portland, that he's not winning here. And then it's also, you know, McCollum's reaction that I found interesting on first take. Here's C.J. I don't think he's going to ask out. I don't think he's going to request out. But I, I will say this. I think based on how the draft goes and what happens leading up to the draft, if they're not positioned to have what we consider a title contending team or a puncher's chance, he's a boxer, right? He just wants a puncher's chance. And right now they do not have a puncher's chance. I think the fans can recognize that. The rest of the league can recognize that. Then I think they will have a discussion where they try to figure out what's best for him and where he should go. We talked about Miami. We've talked about Brooklyn. We've talked about your Knicks. I don't think your Knicks are going to be able to get them, but you never know in this business. It's more about what teams can offer for Dame. Who has the right assets? Because he can want to go where he wants to go. You can want him to go to a big market or to Boston or to all of these cities, but the pieces have to work. And I think for them as an organization, they're at a crossroad. If I was a betting man, I would say this is the last that we've seen of him there. Um, if I was a betting man, I, I would say... This is the last we've seen of him there. But I'm not a betting man, and I think he's going to let this play out. I think the organization is really going to see what they can honestly get both ways in terms of potentially moving D or... There it is. Uh, C.J. McCollum talking about it. And interesting, Lillard is saying on Showtime that Miami and Brooklyn are two teams that he could see himself being traded to just because of the people who are there and their rosters. Is he asking out without asking out? Is he saw, sure Is he quiet like quitting on the Blazers? Is Damian Lillard quiet quitting? Uh, you know, I, I think he's trying to be as professional as he can be, but he's pretty much laid it out. Like, either position yourselves to win or find me a new home. And I said it last segment. If I'm a Blazer fan, I'm not thinking about what's best for Damian Lillard at this point. I'm thinking about what's best for the Blazers. Get the best possible deal you can get for him. Do not be in a hurry to do it. You don't have to do it by the June draft. You don't even have to do it by the February trade deadline. But you have to do it before he becomes a liability on your team. And also before he raises his hand and says, trade me or else. Number two story, as you see it, Anna. Lionel Messi explains why he chose... MLS, hello everybody, enter Miami over Saudi Arabia and other options. He says, uh, well, you know, he always kind of knew if it didn't work out in Barcelona, he was going to leave the whole like Europe thing behind and go to the United States to live football in another way and to enjoy the day to day more. How about that? The tickets for the Miami MLS club went from $40 to $450 
with the announcement. Yeah, but did you see? Ticket. Did you see the detail of what it took to get him there? I did not. I. Uh, this is great. So the pitch includes Apple offering a share of revenue mm. generated by new subscribers to the MLS season pass on Apple TV, and a nod to Adidas offering a profit sharing agreement. MLS and Adidas have worked together since, uh, you know, the league's inception in 96. Apple announced uh, that it's got a four-part docu-series on him on Apple TV+. It feels like they, they knew it was coming. They're foreshadowing his arrival. But he'll get a piece of the broadcast partnership. I got to thank Michael Jordan's mother for some of this. <laughs> Anybody who's seen Air knows that these kinds of deals were born uh, when Michael Jordan's mother said, nope, not enough. They're not the shoes until my son puts them on. Anna, the number three story as you see it. Belmont Stakes 2023, final leg of the Triple Crown, will not be canceled or postponed despite the poor air quality in New York City. You know, just 400 wildfires in Canada leaving the skies over the city oh gray. There's uh, Major League Baseball games getting canceled, all kinds of things getting canceled, but not the 155th edition of the Belmont Stakes, which currently, as of today, is still scheduled for Saturday, and the show will go on. The show must go on. Uh, this is uh, it, Belmont is quite an interesting thing because you can stay in Manhattan. You can stay in downtown. You can stay in New York City, and you can get to Belmont Park in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, along with 130,000 of your closest friends. It is a massive racetrack. Um, it's it's a big event for TV. Uh, by the way, only nine horses competing in this. So, you know, I don't think anybody's asking the horses about air quality, but, man, Peter Jacobson was talking earlier. He said it, it was a little bit like Oregon and the wildfires we had a couple of years ago that threatened, uh, you know, college football Saturdays. But Belmont Stakes, uh, 155th running, Saturday, nine horses. By the way, it's the longest of the Triple Crown races, mile and a half. That's a good trivia question. Number four. You guys talk about Chris Paul already? Yeah. We talked some more about it. Sons are planning to wave him. He shared the saddest story about his daughter getting heckled at school because he hasn't won a title. He said that his young daughter, uh, you know, who's really sweet, and she's at an age now where at school kids talk crazy to her. That she had a little boy at school that said some reckless stuff to her like, your daddy ain't never going to win no championship. Isn't that awful? Is the kid right? Well, I don't know, but... <laughs> <laughs> Am I wrong to believe it may not be true? Uh, I don't believe I, him. You don't believe it? You no, think Chris Paul's making it up? Because Russell Westbrook did the same thing. He Westbrook. So he said that his kids were getting bullied because they were calling... His dad, Westbrick. Why would they make that up? You think they're hiding behind the shield of their children? I do. Oh, my gosh. You guys are cold. Let's listen to Chris Paul's words. It's tough, man, but can't nobody ever be harder on me than I am on myself, right? And I feel like I've been in every situation there is possible. Um, I was in the playoffs when I played for uh, the Clippers and game three or four in Portland, one of them, I go for a steal. My finger gets caught in the guy's jersey, spiral fracture in my hand. I had to get 16 screws put in my hand, right? So I've had injuries and things like that. But the one thing about it, as mad as I, all, I am and whatnot, I cannot let that define me, right? I got to get back to work. 
Yeah. Also, by the way, he's coming off a four-year, hundred twenty million dollar contract. Let's not like I. I love how he's saying. You know, look at my finger. I had sixteen stitches. You know, go tell that to some guy who's holding a jackhammer somewhere. I'm sorry. I. It, you know, I hear that. I'm. I'm. I'm more. I want to hear more about the kid getting teased. Yeah. Because I want to know if it was really true or if he's just hiding. Well, he, using I his don't. I don't human think he's shield. making it up. Human she, shield. She, he situation. said that she held it together while she was still at school and then broke down when she got in the car. That's sad. Uh, I don't know. What? It, say <laughs> it. <laughs> say it. No. Say it. <laughs> I just. Why? Why would that bother the kids so much? I don't understand. Yeah. Like, is she, why would she be breaking down because some kid said your dad hasn't won a championship? Like, I don't, it doesn't seem like that would be breakdown worthy. Doesn't feel like that's enough to make a kid cry, Steven said. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's test that theory. Yesterday, John said, I don't care if my kids know that I love them. I meant I care more <laughs> that they love themselves. Right? Parenting you know, 101 on this show. We mm-hmm. tell we tell our children we love them. They should know. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. But beyond that, if you had a choice between does my dad love me or do I love myself, I would hope they first love themselves. Point should taken. I just say that? No, point taken. Am I getting it wrong? Guys are good. I've good. also never won an NBA championship. I hope my kids are not get, getting teased on the uh, playground. Your goal here is to raise <laughs> resilient children. Chris Paul... Chris Paul's kid should just heckle. It's hey, ain't my problem. Yeah, I got 120 million in the bank. What do you got? My dad's in the NBA. I have a hard time believing that they would be teasing him too. Oh my god! I'm kind of with Steven on this. Feels like it's fabricated. Flash. And a number five story as you see it. Finally, 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 finally. Catcher Ethan Salas. Okay, so he's a Padres prospect. It's his first pro home run just yeah. days after turning 17 years old. He's the number three prospect in the Padres organization. Uh, connected on his first pro home run yesterday. He just turned 17. Um, he was 16 when he was signed. Yep. Signed for $5.5 million. Um, and, uh, catcher, too. And he's a catcher. Yeah. I don't know why I liked this story. I just, I just do. Maybe it's because your dad played professional baseball so young that a story like this catches my eye i think there's i've been to the dominican republic okay he's venezuelan but i've been to the dominican republic and we're talking about extreme poverty it when we talk about we always say like the baseball fields with rocks on them and all that stuff it's true to some extent but there are some nice baseball facilities that the mlb clubs have built down there since finding prospects because they are going, hey, we can mine the Latin countries. We can go to the Dominican. We can go to Venezuela. We can we can grab players that you know are not in America. But there is something to the rags to riches stories that come out of Latin baseball. That is, uh, it, it, and it's not like America where sometimes you see a kid who gets a contract and you look at the family and you're like man everyone's along for the ride in those stories those families that are in extreme poverty you see that it affects the entire town like everybody shares in the success and to some extent it you know the players often will go back and live in the off season where they're from we don't do that in america Mm -hmm. if you grow up in poverty in america and you make it big you move 
you move to the suburbs, you buy, you end up in a gated community. It may be that it's a gated community in Venezuela or the Dominican Republic, but you just see that there is an extreme love for their country, and it's such a good story. It's such a redeeming story, and he's so young. So young. Just the third player since 2018 to play in single A during their age 17 season, and he's four years younger than the average age of California League players. He's a left-handed hitting catcher and a real talent. Yeah, people are comparing him a little bit to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and and some other players, but um, he got five and a half million dollars. So good for him. And this again comes from this uh, bonus pool that baseball teams are given for international spending. Hmm. You can't go above, I think, five point eight million dollars. So he got most of that from uh, from his club. Interesting. Padres doing a good job uh, with the minor league system. Be fun to see. Um, that's the five at five. Nicely done, Anna. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Anna went over to the school today uh, as our eight-year-old turned nine and dropped off uh, some Krispy Kreme donuts. Did you regret buying? Like, you brought half-sprinkled, half-glazed. Yeah. Caused a big problem. I know. Big mistake. Why would you do big, that? Huge uh, I don't know, because I figured there would be like some kids that wanted glazed and some that wanted no. ones with sprinkles. No, you Turns go out, sp- go sprinkles. They all wanted sprinkles. My 100%. son, my son would have loved it. He's he's the glazed guy. He doesn't like the mm. sprinkles, so you can yeah. bring him in my house if you need to. I I, I just and, and the kids didn't turn away the glaze, did no, they? No, no, come on, they're donuts. But there was a little bit of pouting going on. Yeah, but then it's of, like suck it up. How did you decide who got you? the sprinkled donuts? Did you just arbitrarily do it, or you know, pick your uh, favorite kids, or what'd you do? There was. <laughs> uh, I did succumb to sort of like whoever was pushier got the sprinkled donuts. Really? I know. Squeaky I know. will. It's really a high pressure situation. That's phenomenal. I was, I was sweating by the time I was done. I, did, uh, I didn't like that feeling. I wouldn't want to be in that position. No. But you stepped like five paces away. I was like, you were like, you got this. You, you go got ahead. this. I was looking at the kids' faces. I was like, there are going to be some kids who go home upset for getting a donut. That's how it works. Uh, John Wilner's coming up, Bay Area News Group. We're going to talk about the Pac-12. They have agreed on a grant of rights. I reported it today at johnconzano.com. I'm going to kick it around with Wilner. What does it really mean? When is this going to end? Uh, and by the way, he, he told me this morning he felt like in February and March something changed with the Pac-12. What is it that changed? I'll uh, probe on the subject with John Wilner. We'll talk about it a little bit. You get to hear us talk about the Ducks, the Beavers, uh, Washington, Washington State, and more. I want you to leave it here. My interview with John Wilner coming up. News today out of the Pac-12 footprint. We've been talking a little bit on the show, the Pac-12 CEO group, uh, appears to have agreed and finalized the terms of their grant of rights. What does that mean? Well, John Wilner of the Bay Area News Group is here to talk about it. The grant of rights, Wilner, it includes a variety of elements all 10 schools need to agree on. It appears that the Pac-12 is agreed on this. Uh, this includes postseason incentives and revenue sharing on media rights and you know what sponsorships are Pac-12 centralized versus left for individual campuses to sell and uh, and all of that stuff, but help people understand the the grant of rights. How do you explain it to like your neighbor when they ask you, Wilner? Hey, what does this mean? Yeah, there's so much there's so much focus on the media rights piece of it, right? Which is how much money the networks are paying, and which networks are going to show the games, and what time. But there's the the second piece is the schools have to agree to basically 
bind their media money to the conference, to the center. And so the the networks will pay the conference and then the money would get distributed without the, the schools agreeing to bind all their rights to the center, known as the grant of rights agreement. You, you can't have a media deal. And one is contingent upon the other. You know, the networks say, well, here's what we're going to do. And the schools say, all right, well, we'll we'll uh, we'll accept that if, if once it's offered and the networks say once you. Uh, you know, once you sign your grant of rights, we'll 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 sign our our deal, right? It's it kind of happens. There's two pieces that have to happen together, and then after that, they decide on expansion, right? Although I think we both, you know, everybody understands they're talking about expansion even before they have actually signed, agreed to a media deal, and and signed the grant of rights. You and I talked about this in depth on the podcast we do, and for those of you listening who haven't already listened or heard an episode of Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast, I encourage you to go to wherever you get a podcast and subscribe and give it a listen because we, we went into great depth. But I want to ask you, you know, there's been talk in the last week or so about Colorado and Arizona and the doom and gloom crowd in the Big 12 footprint. Maybe they're wishing and hoping, but what do you make of all that smoke coming out of Boulder? I mean, there's been periods of smoke from various schools uh, over the many months, right? And I just get back to what Colorado Chancellor Phil DeStefano said in was probably at this point is probably April, right? Where he said, hey, we're willing to be patient and wait and give the Pac-12 a chance to get the best deal possible. And as long as the presidents and chancellors are willing to be patient, there's a much better chance that the conference is going to stick together with the with the 10 schools. And I don't ha- see any reason to think that Stefano has changed his mind on on that piece. So they are waiting for, uh, you know, the official offer, the final offer from the networks, and then they will make their decision. But I don't think anybody is going to leave until they see that final offer. That seems pretty clear. The, you know, the grant of rights we now know includes equal sharing of media rights dollars, um, which is interesting because you do have – some markets like Pullman and Corvallis, Oregon, and, you know, uh, that are worth less from a media standpoint than maybe Seattle or Phoenix or Boulder. But also the grant of rights included uh, some incentivized distributions for the college football playoff. How do you read that? Who wins there? What is that about? Well, certainly Washington, Oregon, and Utah you know, would seem to be big winners since those are the the three best football programs at this point. Uh, but then there's a lot of money in that playoff, right? I mean, if you were to split, just kind of give give a, each participant fifty percent of of the the amount of money that 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 participation is generating for the conference, you give fifty percent. That's a that's tons. That's you know tens of millions of dollars potentially. So. There's so much money in the playoff that to me it makes sense to split it in some fashion like that. You don't want to have an unequal share of your your TV money because then that creates conflict in the boardroom when everybody gets together, the ADs or the presidents. But I don't think there's any there's any any problem with sh- with you know an eat what you kill situation uh, for for the playoff, right? And I I think every conference is going to eventually end up in that situation. Yeah, and I. Th- think uh i think it's fair right if you're investing in football you should be reaping yep. the benefits of that um you know you in the podcast we did talked about 
a sense of calm or maybe I know something the rest of the public doesn't know that happened with the Pac-12 in February or March. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I just think that they they know the numbers or if they don't know the final numbers of, of the media rights bids, they at least know the, the basic terms and, and the, the framework. And I just have the sense, given the kind of the trajectory of the noise and how much more quiet it has been lately, I, I my gut is that sometime in late February, March, or even early April, they got bids from uh, media partners. And so they know the the basics. And so that would then allow them behind the scenes to agree to the the piece you reported on, which is the grant of rights. They're not agreeing to a uh, grant of rights without having any idea what the what the media rights piece is going to be. So I just feel like they have a pretty good sense of what it's going to be. And they're waiting for the final official you know, legal offer to come in. When that comes in, I don't know. But it would make sense to me that they are much further along in this process than a lot of people think. San Diego State, before I cut you loose, let's talk about them. They have, The fans, Aztec fans, really want to be in a Power 5 conference. The Pac-12 seems to be the right fit for them. Do you think San Diego State, first of all, do you think they fit better in the Pac-12 or the Big 12? Does it matter to them? I mean, will they take the Big 12 if the Pac-12 isn't asking? Tell me where you think they stand. I think they would much prefer the Pac-12. They fit much better in the Pac-12. The Big 12 does not make a whole lot of sense for them, I think, on a, lot, a bunch of fronts. One is they're not coming in at a full share, right? I mean, they would have to probably, whether it's the Pac-12 or Big 12, they'd probably have to come in with like 25% of the revenue for a couple of years, then 50% of the revenue. They're not getting a full share. Uh, but I just think institutionally, given where they're located, given uh, the importance of California in their, you know, their uh, student body, uh, given the academic affiliation that they would have with Cal and Stanford it, as a member of the Pac-12, I just think they would much prefer that. I mean, their president has got three degrees from Cal, right? I mean, she wants to be in the Pac-12. They don't want to be schlepping all over the central and southern plains and Orlando and Morgantown, West Virginia. So I just think they want to be in the Pac-12 and they're going to have to wait. And if it costs them more money because it goes past that June 30th deadline, they, they may have to just find a way to make that work. For those who want much more in-depth, we did about 35 minutes on the podcast on this subject. You can grab it anywhere you get a podcast. Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast. John Wilner, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, my friend. John Wilner, I, we used to work together. I was at the San Jose Mercury News all those years ago and covering the NFL and Major League Baseball, and Wilner was on the Pac-12 conference. I have so much respect for his work, and we teamed up forces on the podcast, and I, we have fun with it on a weekly basis. And, in fact, we talked a little bit today about milestones in families. I don't know if you have a kid graduating from uh, junior high to high school, or do you graduate junior high? I don't know. Going from middle school to high school or going from high school to college, you certainly graduate high school. And I don't know, you might have a kid who's graduating college. That's a milestone. You might have a kid who's graduating preschool. That might be a milestone in your family. But we talked a little bit about it. He's got a kid leaving uh, elementary school, going off to junior high, and he equated it to, uh, he said his son is basically crawling through the sewer, escaping Shawshank. To get out into middle school. I don't know. I had a great elementary school experience. It was very gentle, my elementary school. Middle school was harder for me. It was a tough school. It was a rough school. The first time I saw like and heard about gangs and stuff like that was middle school, but it kind of was reflective of where I grew up.
Um, I always had I had good experiences in school, but those transition years, like that seventh grade for our my middle school was seventh and eighth only, wasn't sixth grade, and that seventh grade year was a little bit of an eye opener, and then freshman year of high school, new school, a little bit of an eye opener. Freshman year of college, a little bit of an eye opener. But I'm aware of that in myself, and I don't think everybody's the same. Certainly not my kid, our oldest daughter. She just kind of hits the ground running. She does not look back. And I remember it. I've told this to several people who have kids who are going off to college or you know graduating college, going off into the real world. And we all look back as parents. We're looking backward. We see our kid who is a high school kid who's graduating and we get sad when we're dropping off off at college, this great pivot point in their life, because we're looking back at their childhood going, where did it go? What about that first bike ride without training wheels? What about that first day of kindergarten? We look backward. I, I noticed this year, as, or two years ago, when I dropped the kid off at college, I was like, she's looking forward. She's not sad about this. I'm sad. I'm wispy. I'm looking backward. She's looking forward. It's a good good point to think about. But my kid hit the ground running in college, and I asked her, like, do you go back to your high school? Did you go back and visit? Like, she had a great high school experience. She's like, no, nah, I'm really focused on what I'm doing now. I think it's very forward thinking. Like, she's on a treadmill looking straight ahead. And uh, as a parent, I'm looking backwards going, where did it all go? Uh, great stuff with Wilner. Um, I'll dive a little deeper on it coming up in the next segment. Uh, I've talked about it throughout today's show. By the way, we had a great show today, Peter Jacobson among others, uh, grab the podcast of today's show if you want a good listen. Uh, but coming up, I will dive deeper on the Pac-12 front. What does it mean, Grant of Rights? Where does it go next? The possibility of this Pac-12 saga ending feels like it's in sight now, doesn't it? I want you to leave it here. you got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Big birthday today in our household. Uh, Zia, the middle daughter, turning nine today. Kind of a big deal. Birthdays are a big deal at kids' elementary school. I don't remember my birthday being that big a deal. But I also know that my birthday happens to fall right around Thanksgiving. And often I wasn't in school and celebrating with other kids. We were often off that week or certainly off most of the time throughout my childhood. And so I don't have, like, the memory of being at school on my birthday. And so summer birthday kids, you know what I'm talking about, but... Our middle daughter turned nine today. I talked a little bit in the last segment with John Wilner, who has a kid who's leaving elementary school, going off into middle school. You've heard me talk over the years about my kids growing up, whether it is the birth of children. I've been doing this show 17 years, so you know, you've know you had a couple of kids. There's been a couple of birth announcements on this show. We haven't had a live birth yet. I tried to convince a board operator for ready. Once upon a time, his wife was having a baby. I said, why not do it in studio? And he said his wife wouldn't go for it. But and I, don't think, I don't think we need to go that far. Uh, but uh, we have, uh, we've seen some milestones. First day of kindergarten, kids leaving middle school, going to uh, high school, kids leaving high school and graduating, and, and leaving college and graduating. Next week on the show, um, we will do some graduation advice, some life advice from all of you to all of them. I always think it's a good time to reflect and think about what we wish we would have known when we were graduating. But uh, our middle daughter turning nine, big deal, her birthday. She's up bright and early, about 5.30 this morning. She uh, was uh, She's one of these kids that was born at like 6 o'clock in the morning, and she's aware of it. And she's an early riser. 
Is there any correlation there that between your birth time and whether you're a morning person or not? I don't know. But it seems to be true in her case, at least. And our oldest daughter was born in the afternoon, and she's very much a uh, sleep-in kind of person. I don't know. Discuss amongst yourselves. What time of day were you born, and uh, what does that say about whether you're a morning person or not? Um, anyway, we're uh, going to be doing some celebrating with her. She's picked her birthday dinner spot. We let the kids do that. She has picked, uh, uh, she wants to go for your pizza kitchen, CPK. That's her place. She gets the mac and cheese with edamame on it. She gets the edamame on the side. Big deal for her. She gets to have a say in where we eat dinner. Uh, but we're going to do that tonight. Uh, I hope you celebrate the milestones in your household as well, whether it's good grades or whether it's a kid leaving elementary school, going to middle school. I, again, I'm not a big participation award guy. I don't think we should like have a big graduation ceremony every time you are leaving a grade. But uh, I don't mind clapping it out when a kid is uh, making the jump from elementary school to middle school or middle school to high school. I think those are big milestones as well. In the last segment, we talked uh, in some depth with Wilner, John Wilner, who covers the Pac-12, about the jockeying that is going on with the Pac-12 conference members. I broke the news this morning. The Pac-12 conference members have finalized the terms of their grant of rights. Now, what does that mean? What is the grant of rights? We've touched on it throughout the show, but for those of you who weren't listening earlier in the program, I want to tell you, the grant of rights basically is the agreement among the 12 or 10 members, depending on if you're the Pac-12 or the Pac-10, that includes what sponsorships the Pac-12 will sell versus what is left for individual campuses, what sets of rights the conferences can sell, like can they sell data rights, media rights, radio rights, and it will also determine how rent will be split among the 10 member schools. It's a really important document. It basically gives the conference the right to go out and then settle the rights that are included in the grant of rights to prospective media members. Now, a lot of times people will confuse the grant of rights and say, well, there's no way Oregon and Washington will sign a grant of rights unless they're getting an unequal uh, revenue share or whatnot. It, yeah, that's true, but it looks right now like Oregon, Washington, everybody, they have finalized the terms. I'm told they're on the same page. Here's the quote I got from a member of the Pac-12 CEO group. Quote, over the last few months, we have negotiated all of these issues and the grant of rights is ready to go, end quote. Now, the length of that contract will be dictated by the length of the Pac-12's yet-to-be-finalized media rights deal. Still need the media rights piece. That is an important piece because that's where the money's buried. But I'm told all 10 schools are ready to sign the grants of rights. They've worked out any kind of hiccups, deals, negotiations that might have. It simply comes down to the number on the media rights deal now and whether or not that you know that media deal is concluded to their satisfaction. Then the board members will say, yes, we're on board couple of big things going on in the background. People keep asking me, when will this get done? Hell, I thought it would get done by last Thanksgiving. Then I said Christmas. Then I said March. Um, the Pac-12 presidents and chancellors, as Wilner pointed out in the last segment, probably found something out in February or March because they seem to calm down. They seem to grow in confidence. You had Robert Robbins, the president at Arizona, who went public in an interview saying, you know, it should be a couple of weeks. You had Kirk Schultz at Washington State saying he thought a deal was a couple weeks away. You had Colorado's athletic director, Rick George, talking like he knew something the rest of us didn't know. You had a variety of personalities. Utah's president, Utah's athletic director, Mark Harlan. All of, everybody was talking publicly in a way that 
indicated they knew something we didn't. And remember, in March, I was told by a member of the CEO group that the Pac-12 was confident, think about that word, confident that it would beat the Big 12's distribution number of 31.6 million per school. Confident. And they said being in range of it was a no-brainer. I thought that was interesting. You wouldn't say that unless you knew the numbers. So I do think the numbers are there, and I think the Pac-12 knows it. And I think now we're just talking about it being a matter of time and details when it comes to the media rights package. When will it get done? Uh, I have noted that the presidents and chancellors are being very careful to preserve that late spring, early summer timeline that they reset a couple of months ago. Now, summer officially begins June 21st. We are 12 days away from summer. So keep an eye on June 21st as a potential target. Uh, And by the way, there is a looming deadline for San Diego State that is in the background of this conversation. Aztecs, probably the most strong expansion possibility. They have until June 30th to inform the Mountain West Conference if they're leaving. They missed that deadline. The $17 million exit fee doubles to $34 million. Now, a Pac-12 source told me last week that the conference can't really control their deadline. They need to get their deal done. That's where the focus is. Uh, San Diego State, I think, is being very patient. But keep an eye on June 21st, June 30th. It feels to me like they're in the backstretch. Now, we saw a lot of smoke last week with Colorado's Board of Regents in the meeting this week and people speculating that that meant Colorado and Arizona were going, going, gone, going to the Big 12 Conference. I think we have some confirmation bias going on there. I think there's some wishful people that really want Arizona or Colorado to be in the Big 12 who are filling in the blanks with what they want to be true instead of what actually is. In fact, Tuesday's agenda item uh, with the Board of Regents in Colorado, I saw so many stories that I just shook my head at because on the agenda was, quote, legal advice on a specific matter, athletics matter at CU Boulder. Um It turns out that it was just a status update on the media rights negotiations in the Pac-12. It wasn't about Colorado going to the Big 12. So I think you can put that to rest. It looks like Colorado, Arizona, Utah, Arizona State, all moving in the same direction. There's an interesting meeting this Friday. The Board of Regents at Washington State are meeting. Uh, Again, if you read me at johnconzano.com, you found out in real time this morning that there was breaking news, and you found out all about this meeting. I go into a lot more depth on it, but looks like Kurt Schultz, the Washington State president, is looking to get signatory authority, meaning he wants the ability for his signature to approve an athletics department matter. Now, he's already approved to, to uh, make deals up to $5 million. So this tells us this is a media rights issue. And, in fact, it explicitly says in the Board of Regents agenda that action item number four would, quote, give Kirk Schultz the authority to execute contracts or other agreements relating to the university's athletic media rights, end quote. Now, Schultz doesn't have that authority yet, but I'm being told by a source at Washington State that what they're trying to avoid here is having to call a special Board of Regents meeting when they need that approval. So they're giving Schultz the authority. Colorado's got another agenda item on their regents docket for Friday as well at the same time as Washington State. I would not be surprised if Colorado is also seeking that sign-off because it looks to me like you don't want to have to wait 
if you have uh, all these deals lined up and you've got a meteorites deal, you don't want to, in the 11th hour, have to wait. And why would the 11th hour be important? Well, San Diego State and that $17 million payout. Feels to me like, like the Pac-12 conference is trying to get its deal done and also be respectful of maybe San Diego State who's waiting in the wings. I don't know. Uh, how do these deals get finalized? Uh, Bob Thompson, the retired Fox Sports Network's president, he's been on the other side of the table. Now, I reached out to him this morning, and he told me that he did not remember individual schools having to go back and consult with their regents. He said that basically Fox told the conference that, hey, you're responsible for acquiring the necessary grant of rights approvals and uh, to represent that you have those approvals. And he said, quote, how and when they did that, I have no idea, end quote. Well, I asked around. Every campus in the Pac-12 has a little different process. I talked about Washington State's process. Private schools like Stanford have a different protocol. Some of the universities, by the way, have already granted signatory rights to their presidents and chancellors. Cal did it long ago. Cal's, you know, chancellor has the ability to make a deal uh, and sign off on media rights. Now, Oregon's different in that it's working with an interim president until July 1st. So Oregon's protocol might just be a little different between now and July 1 when John Carl Schultz takes office. And I'm kind of interested to find out if uh, John Carl Schultz consulted on any of this or looped in on any of this. He's going to walk through the door on July 1. He's either going to have to hit the ground running or he's going to inherit a media rights deal. So it's really interesting. But one Pac-12 CEO group, CEO group member told me, quote, each campus is doing whatever it needs to do to be ready to approve when the time comes, end quote. What do I make of all this? I make that this soap opera is moving along. It does and has felt at different times, though, that it's moving along. You still need to get the media rights numbers on paper. You still need to put ink to paper. Pac-12 still needs to finalize this, get it done, put it to rest, whatnot. Looming in the background, a major college football season. Pac-12 media day is July 21st. Then you have week one of the college football season on the horizon you got oregon oregon state washington washington state and everybody else going to play football games so you don't want to be dealing with this come august and september you really don't in fact if you're the pac-12 i don't even think you want to be dealing with this in july if i'm the pac-12 uh you have you have a a deadline that is kind of floating out there going hey you're 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 in your last year of your deal at july 1 now keep in mind that the big 10 conference they did not announce their new deal until they were in about seven months remaining on their existing contract. So I think a lot of what we've seen in the last four, five, six months has been a narrative that has been forced onto the Pac-12 by outsiders who are hoping that the conference implodes, maybe um, some gloom and doom, maybe some anxiety uh, derived from USC and UCLA leaving the conference a year ago, you know, June 30th, uh, and people kind of fretting and going, oh, gosh, who's next, all of that stuff. Look, But I think the bottom line is that the reporting that you have heard on this show, the reporting that you have read from me at johnconzano.com is, has not wavered. It has not changed. The 10 members are galvanized. They are unified. They now have agreed upon a grant of rights. That is an important distinction because there, for a while there it was like, well, will Oregon and Washington sign a grant of rights? I'm being told all 10 members will sign the grant of rights, that they have ironed out all of the issues. College football playoff will be, money will be distributed uh, with incentives. 
So if you make the playoff, you get a bigger share of that. I think that's where all of college football is going. Oregon and Washington and Utah have to be happy about that in particular. Maybe Oregon State, too. Uh, and I also think it's interesting that NCAA tournament units will not be incentivized. They will be distributed equally. I think that is a really interesting facet of this deal. The perception being that probably Oregon and Washington uh, are better positioned to derive uh, you know, larger shares of, of tournament money when it comes to basketball. But it appears at this point that basketball units will be split equally. So keep an eye on that as uh, this all unfolds. We will be back tomorrow with another great show. Peyton Pritchard on the show tomorrow. He's back uh, in Oregon participating in a Westland High School basketball camp. Peyton Pritchard giving back to the uh, community that he came up in. But we'll talk tomorrow about the NBA Finals with Peyton Pritchard, have him break down what he sees on the court, uh, what he saw last season or this season uh, as a member of the Boston Celtics. What don't the rest of us know about the NBA? Peyton Pritchard fills us in tomorrow. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time, just a good time.